This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Cora. We're going to talk about Binary by Michael Crichton. This was published in 1972 under the name John Lang. Uh, some of the Lang books were paperback originals and some were hardcovers. I think this was a hardcover. Um, why is that important? Well, uh, yeah, why is that important? I think it is important. Um, did you guys notice how very, very slim this volume was? How short the audiobook was? Yes, I, I was so. rather surprised. It was not even four hours. Uh, I think it was. I think it's just over four hours. Let me just look here. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of these, uh, yeah, four hours twenty six minutes. Okay. Uh, so yeah, it's very a very slim volume. This is uh, the kind of paperback novel that I uh, said I love novels <laughs> from. You know, like I read a lot of books, and some of the books are are novels and some of them are not, but I love the novel form, but I don't love modern novel form. Modern novel form is very big. And, uh, as Michael Crichton's career went on, his books got bigger and bigger. Um, not because, uh, the, uh, books demanded it necessarily, but rather because of some market concerns, uh, the price of paper, the price of marketing, like a lot of weird things are going into it. And, trilogies and you know lots of sequels and it it really affects the form but in in the 70s and the 60s and the 50s um the par- the paperback market was incredibly powerful like paperback originals and so i was a bit surprised to see this one had had a hardcover other john lang novels didn't um but they were all very slim volumes. If you look at the audiobooks of the John Lang books, which is his pseudonym, um, they're all between five and three hours, three and something hours. Very, so very slim. The one I have is also, I have another one by, by another of his John Lang books, Drag of Choice, and that's also, that's also a really slim one. It's yeah. also one of the hard case crime reprints. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this book really cooked, right? Went real fast. <laughs> um, in 19th century, you get some very long books. In 20th century, you get some very long books. 21st century, you get some very long books. Uh, but I don't think it necessarily makes the books better just to make them longer. Sometimes it requires it. But I, I felt like this book cooked super well. Like it just beat, 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 and we're done. Well, I, I think that's also partially because of the subject matter. I mean, this is basically a techno thriller. Yeah, kind of. So, a te- techno thrillers generally don't work at super long lengths because you got to m- maintaining that pacing for something that's supposed to be having a ticking time bomb of some kind or another. It's it's difficult. I mean, I think um, what's his name, Tom Clancy? Even Tom Clancy. I mean, his techno thrillers. I mean. When there, what, he he cooks that by basically putting in tons of detail, and yeah. he did past that <laughs> to pad it out. So you can, so oh yes, yeah, so so when Tom Clancy pads them out with giving us uh, all sorts of tech, which is one of my main problems with techno thrillers. Mm-hmm. Also, Tom Clancy, it's all of those blah technical details. Yes. honestly, I don't read read um, manuals for operation manuals for subways. <laughs> 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 yeah, unless um, I'm paid to translate them. If I'm paid to translate this stuff. 
I will read it, of course, but I, I, I'm not I, eating it in my letter reading. And uh, no. bonus points, actually, if, if he gets something, if, the, if you find obvious mistakes, because there often are obvious mistakes in science fiction sometimes also does it also is blah, 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 techno bubble. How, how long is your, your copy, Cora? Because you have a paperback. I have a paper copy. Let me check because in the end there's a um, teaser for another book. Yeah. It makes it a little thicker. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Which is... With the epilogue, mm -hmm. it's, um, it's uh, 220 pages. Right. So, uh, Hunt for Red October, which is, I think, probably what people would think is the most iconic. Yeah, of, of techno thrillers. You know, he, he didn't invent the form, but he sort of was at the peak and that was published, uh, as 387 pages. But uh, notice, um, your complaint about it's a manual for running, um, for, uh, <laughs> submarines. October always makes me laugh because it was, uh, because my German teacher in high school loved it. German teachers in high school don't like popular fiction. Of course not. Not especially they're not like American popular fiction. And this German teacher was a, he was a, a communist. He was a hardcore communist. I have no idea how he managed to get employed because uh, <laughs> normally people, who, yes, normally people, maybe he was never in any groups because normally people who were considered radical, leftist radicals and communists had problems getting state employment in schools, but somehow he slipped through. He was a hardcore communist. And, uh, but for some reason, he loved Hunt for Red October by Tom Clay. And he shamed the students for reading Stephen King or, or that sort of thing, saying it was all, old, it's all, it's not real literature, but he loved Red, Hunt for Red October and he was open about it. I think at the time, of course, there was just this one book. There were, were not all the thousand other Tom Clancy. But always, whenever I, I really, really don't, didn't like this, he was a terrible, terrible person. And I think he's still alive. Wait, alive. wait, are we talking like, about okay, Tom Clancy or your, I would want to tell your this teacher? Guy, this guy and uh, one of the last thing I would probably say, oh yes, and by the way, oh yes, and you, you use a ultra communist like Tom Clancy, who is really some kind of American far right conservative. Yeah, right, right. You were not even believable in that. I wanted to, to say that it was not published by a regular publisher. It was this book, uh, Hunt for Red October, was published by Naval Institute Press. So it was it was not aimed to be a a popular success right it, it, or if even if clancy had wanted it to be it wasn't suited to be a popular well uh, but it kind of exploded and i remember did. back in back in the 80s and reading articles about like oh this this little book out of this naval press that you should read called the run for red october and and actually where i read that you're gonna you're going to laugh because i want to bring this up anyway so back back in the eight back in the 70s there was a board game called Harpoon, which is basically detailed naval, modern naval combat between the U.S. and the USSR. And then they made video games out of these in the late 80s and early 90s. And so I read about The Hunt for Red October in a computer strategy game magazine talking about <laughs> Harpoon. It's talking about this novel by somebody called Tom Clancy mm -hmm. at, at the Naval Institute. And it's like, and, and, and if you read The Hunt for Red October and you play Harpoon, it's like, yeah, Clancy definitely had a hang on for this game. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like Harpoon. It's like a novel. less weird than hearing about the book from your communist German teacher who hates all Yeah, that, that's even weirder. Well, it, it is, it is very much interested in the power of the Soviet Union. And even if it is about a defection, 
the the point is there's a lot of high tech tech, right? So whether you whether you uh, like communism or not, you have to appreciate the Soviet space uh, program. You know, you have to appreciate. Uh, and so it has it has cross cultural appeal. A book like that. Um, similarly, Dune, right? Famously not published in uh, a mainstream press. Uh, it was published by Chilton, which normally makes like car repair manuals. Um, and then had great, great success that, you know, is But it was serialized iconic. in analog before. It was. Like, so. uh, it was so the, the under a different title. Had, yeah, I think it was Dune, Dune World and Dune Mess. Was it Dune Mess? I think it was two different. I think it was originally two novels and mm. the full Dune. It was a fix up. Dune yeah. Published by Chilton was, uh, yeah. was one novel. Actually, at Galactic Journey, the one who, the, the reviewer who, Gideon Marcus's reviewer always does analog and he doesn't like Dune and he was really, he spent months literally slogging through Dune and, because he was an analog reviewer and then, then we, we said like, okay, Dune comes out, the book version comes out like, like this month. Does anybody want to review it? Because especially since we had gotten the, given the serialization a negative review because um, Gideon just doesn't like the book. Hmm. Book and uh, but no one actually wanted to do Dune for Dune. Everybody's like, no, no, I don't really want to do Dune, to do Dune either. So yeah, so the only Dune review review we have is this really negative. Is this rather negative one? Well, that's uh, that's unusual. <laughs> I'm sure there are some people who are forced to read Hunt for Red October that they didn't not, like. Not it. Everybody says Dune is the most wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed true. Dune when I read it the first time around. And then I tried to reread it sometimes, I think after the science fiction channel miniseries came out, which I didn't like. And I was like, okay, was a book always this, was a book like, a book like this also is just a really bad adaptation because I found out I didn't remember, remember a whole lot of, of it. Um, it that had, that would have been like almost, um, would have been like 15 years or so after I first read it. So I, so I reread it and I said, okay, uh, I really like this one better the first time around. So, um, I want to, I want to say why I was talking about, um, the format a little bit more because, um, it's, it's been a long time since I read a seventies crime book, basically. And that's what this is. It, it does come across as a techno thriller. It was like some, like Donald Westlake, like of dancing course. Aztecs or mm-hmm. stuff like that. And, uh, that's exactly what made me think of it, Paul. Did you guys notice <laughs> the Westlake in here? <coughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, definitely. I'll just, I'll just read. I'll uh, no, like literally, his name is in here. I'm going to read the mm-hmm. section. Oh, it died. Did not hit. That was in 1957, and the Cold War was grim. Washington needed Russian translators desperately. There were fears of a land war in Europe, fears of a grand conquistadorial campaigns conducted by world communism, meaning those two friendly allies, Russia and China. At the time, the fears had seemed compelling and logical. Graves worked for two years in the army as a Slavic translator, and after his discharge joined the State Department in the same capacity. The pay was good and the work was interesting. He had a feeling of being useful, of doing necessary and even important work. In 1959, he married a girl on Senator Westlake's staff. They oh! They had a daughter in 1961. Okay, so... Uh, yes. Um, but, um, did y'all watch the movie? I did not have a chance to watch the movie. Cora? I didn't get around to it either. Sorry. It's okay. Tell us all about the movie. Too, too, way too busy this week. <laughs> it, it, Westlake is not in the movie. Um, however, uh, the, and interestingly, um, uh, 
Lang, a.k.a. Um, Crichton, didn't uh, write the script. He was given a choice, either write the script or direct the film. Because he's a pretty good scriptwriter. He is yeah. terrific. This is actually his first film uh, TV movie. Adaptation? Yeah. No, it's just the first thing he ever did as a f- filmmaker. Um, and they said, you can't do both. Uh, but whoever did write the script basically didn't change very much. The Most of the dialogue is straight out of the book. Like, lines not changed at all. There is uh, a major change at the beginning that it's a train uh, in the book. It's a truck in in the film it's just cheaper Which to do probably trucks. just for yeah it's it's yeah. for cost reasons it's easier to do a truck heist than yeah. a train heist because the you don't have casting isn't exactly who i you know ben gazzara isn't uh, the man of action i think we're supposed to think uh john graves is and for some reason they changed his name to steve <laughs> uh probably because i wanted which was really a bit confusing that both is that we john grave the, yeah. who's the protagonist. We have John Wright, the antagonist, so they're both mm-hmm. called John, and then John Lang, the author, so there's yeah. way too many songs. Too many Johns, yeah. Well, that's okay, part... That, but that fits... In a novel, you can handle that. Uh, in a movie, it's kind of less, less it's paying attention. In yeah. a movie, it, it's it can even be. confusing in a novel. It's, uh, it's Our a, writing advice says, like, basically, don't use names which are way too similar, which are too similar. But similar, which is, uh, he's doing that on purpose. Don't even have two names with the first, uh, with the same, same starting with the same letter. But these these names were all quite. Some, but the, the Johns, there were way too many Johns. But he's book. doing it on purpose. It's not an yeah, accident. Yeah, of course, it right? is. Um, it's right it in the title. It's supposed to show how similar these two guys are. They, they are mirrors to yeah. each other, and mm-hmm. if you change it and make one a Steve. Um, you're sort of misunderstanding that. Uh, this is why diluting, I like you're diluting the whole binary aspect of that. Yes, and that's why I like looking at the adaptations. It's not because adaptations are always, you know, uh, improvements. Rather, because adaptations are an interpretation of the book. It's like reading somebody's right. book review. But right. they're, not, they're not the book themselves. They have to focus on the entirety of the of the original plot. In a way that a reviewer doesn't. A reviewer can just ignore things that he or she doesn't want to talk about. Uh, but uh, in an adaptation, you're forced to reconcile the entire thing, and that's what makes a good adaptation is is being forced to reconcile the entire thing. A bad ab- adaptation will, you know, maybe you cut a whole section out. But um, it's interesting. One of the things that is very Michael Crichton in the film um, is there's a ticking clock starts at the beginning it says minus 16 hours or something like that and we see that going for about 20 minutes then it goes away then it comes back again and then we get down to that you know five o'clock time and then the counter starts going to the 16 minute mark afterwards right and Mm -hmm. so it's it's visually on screen like a little ticking clock at the at the bottom in it's a very, very Michael Crichton move as a filmmaker, something he would do in his other films that he directed, which he didn't get to direct enough, in my view. He was a great film director as well as a, a great writer. So uh, almost everything that is in the book is in the movie. They just cut out a lot of stuff. However, uh, remember the scene where they're in the uh, X uh, travel agency and they tear off mm-hmm. a poster from the wall and do a projection and there's a bunch of guys sitting around 
Phelps and, and, uh, the John and John Graves and a bunch of other people. Um, one of those guys gets a name and it is not Westlake. It's Stark. (laughs) (laughs) So what am I, what am I, what's my whole point here is, uh, Mr. Um, John Lang, aka Michael Crichton, knows who his daddy is, <laughs> and, and also Phelps. Phelps as a name is. itself is from Mission Impossible. Uh, yeah, it's it's it's, yeah, pr- it's pretty fun. And Phelps, of course. I think yep. Peter Graves is the actor. Phelps is a character. In this <laughs> yes, I caught exactly. you because I watched a, because they were running it a while back, and I watched a lot of it. And it's Mission Impossible, of course, also really, really well done for it. And uh, it's from about the same era. It's a little bit earlier. Yeah, I, I'm not super familiar with the uh, the period for that, but I did see the show, and yeah, you're right. Um, those actors' names and character names are are in there. Um, so I, I just did, I actually start, I actually p- pictured Peter Graves of of, of the Mission Impossible era era in this uh, because I tend to I'm quite a visual reader, and I actually Peter, I actually imagine Peter Graves from the Mission Impossible era as a as a character here. It says 1966 was the start for that. Um, yeah, and it ran into the early 1970s. And there was a yeah. reboot too. I remember with uh, Peter. Yeah, Graves there as was well. one in the 80s, and then there was those Tom Cruise movies, movies which oddly, I mean, they're often not not even bad. The Tom Cruise movies, but it's just like okay, the Tom Cruise movies is a Tom Cruise movie. Yeah. Most TV shows kind of got what Mission Impossible. It's a team thing. Yeah, thing. Uh, it's Definitely. not a it's not a one man show. No, uh, no, the, the, the Tom Cruise ones are teams as well. It's just Tom Cruise yeah, overshadows they're, they're everybody. Always, you just remember, oh, it's Tom Cruise, and oh, yes, and, and there's uh, Simon Peck, and yeah. uh, and someone, and uh, Changing Women. Okay, Bing so Rames. Changing Women, too, but uh, it's, um, yeah. but yes, uh, the, but uh, I, I mean, I only, I think I only watched the first two of the, the Tom Cruise movies, but they were not, uh, but yeah, they didn't give me what uh, didn't give me the same sensation the show did. No, they're completely different, really. Um, and this of course, is a little was bit also one of the first to have a to have a black actor in a, and he wasn't playing a stereotypical role. I think Star yeah Star Trek, but started around the same time with Yuhua because there's a because the tech lineage of the of both Mission Impossible teams and they are played by father and son. The tech lineage is a black guy. I forgot the name of the actor. I, I, very good I, I, I don't know if there's any black people in this book. Um, because we get almost no descriptions. We I think don't that that's right. And we I actually really... No I mean, I'm pretty sure Mr. Nordman is not black, simply because it's very difficult to imagine some a black person. I mean, it's not impossible, but black people normally are not called Nordman. And uh, I think we get a description from of Wright and his girlfriend, but uh, we don't get any... I have no idea what Louis looks like, for example. Yeah, no, I actually, I really like that. I, I like how stripped down this is. It's very simple. Um, in fact, the, the film, just seeing this, the set piece, which is the end, you know, sequence in a book, you can do any kind of set piece you want. It's actually a very simple set piece. Like this is, if, if you think of a much more modern, uh, take on this, it would be the movie Speed. Although, you know, that's not a particularly modern movie. Um, it's this, essentially <laughs> the same. Years old, I think. <laughs> yeah, but it's essentially the same plot, right? Um, mm-hmm. There's a building. There's an, a guy who's on an assassination mission. He he has a dynamic with the the hero who's some sort of cop, and uh, and then there's an action sequence. The difference with Speed is is there's like three action sequences. There's the main bus one. There's one at the beginning with an elevator. 
and then there's one at the end. Uh, oh no, there's actually four. Uh, and there's one on a train at the end as well. Um, but, uh, the, the, the only real action sequence in this entire thing, uh, as a traditional Mission Impossible style thing is, is the room, taking the room from outside and injecting himself with the, with the counter agent all the time. Yeah. Right. And so that seems like it should be like a, uh, uh, very mission impossible thing, but it's done very matter of factly. And then when he gets in there, he finds it was all a sham sort of. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we get a sort of a little extra action sequence at the end. It's just them trying to, you know, get, not be blown up. And so, it not is more about and not be gassed by the right. not be gassed because of course if the gas uh, if the gas was blown up uh, up part of it was also uh, unless it's uh, it's oily I think so yes it, it might the gas might also be combustible but I don't think it's ever rental if the gas is no the gas but the, is con- the container the container is the container is combustible yeah. yes but right. um, yeah so the, yeah, the, the gas but if the gas is not combustible then your gas is just gone um I, I thought it I thought it was very like. Just simple and slick, like super simple and super slick. And I, I think that Crichton's writing is like, it, it's flawless. It, th- there's nothing there that doesn't need to be there. Um, the psychological stuff, what, what he's really doing, it's, it's kind of what I hoped it would be. It's, it's just, I've got this idea of the, a binary relationship where two separate things separately don't do have you know throw any sparks off but you bring them together uh and they do and that's the bomb right yes and it's also the the characters and it's also sort of the antidote and the antidote and also like there's so many little things like i remember the names of the uh two canisters are uh was it v was it start with a v or 701 oh no Mm -hmm. uh anyways the, there's two canisters, and one is like uh, 795, and the other one's 796. I think it's 70, 75 or 76 and some, or something right. like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, but also, did you notice that the driving around in the cars, they're tailing this guy, and mm-hmm. one is like 107, and the other's 105, 106. So they're like their call signs on the cars are mm-hmm. are yeah. the same, separated by one digit, right? Mm-hmm. I think there's an uh, yes, it's a similar call sign, but there's an oh, there's a zero in the middle. Otherwise, yeah, it's yeah, yeah exactly. It's and uh, and in the movie, they do something they kind of have to do, which you can't do. You can do great in books. When he gets a hold of this file in the books, and like uh, what what the psychiatrist thought of his his answers to the Rorschach tests and other kinds of tests, um, he's reading that and. We get some of his reaction, and then we get our own reaction to what we think he would be reacting to, which is terrific. In the film, uh, they have to—he has to go visit his psychiatrist, and his mm-hmm. psychiatrist tells him what he told this guy who, you know, faked it. Um, Martin Sheen, by the way, plays the hacker. Um, uh, what was the uh, the guy who was arrested before? Um, Drew, Timothy Drew, I think. So, 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 yes, sounds, the guy who hacked into the that sounds right into the state department, the no, yep. defense department. Yeah. So he, he it, it's really interesting. This is 1972. Uh, you know, home computers are not a thing yet, right? Yeah, he has to uh, he has to pretend he has to go to the, what was this, uh, this uh, insurance underwriter company or something like that to to use right. their 
also, it's interesting. Their link, I mean, yeah. it's very, it's a very interesting. One thing I really it's like. Very it's, 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 a, uh, it's very high tech in terms of. It's very high tech, but it's also a period piece. It's very much a period piece. Uh, it is. You have to have enough phone. You, they need this to use this travel agency because they have enough phone lines. They need That's right. This uh, guy Timothy Drew needs to needs to sneak into this insurance company to hack the defense department. Yep. And it, wait, 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 which if you just describe that divorced of the period piece like you're going to an insurance company to hack the defense department but it makes sense in the novel because that's the technology of the time because yeah mm-hmm. it's uh, very much a, also um the psychology stuff with the Rorschach test and everything mm-hmm. everything this is uh this is is well this is psychology of the uh well most probably i think it was still in the 70s someone actually that one time someone gave me a Rorschach test mm-hmm. test was when i was a very small Small, sh- small kid. It was, the, it was sometimes the late seventies. Was like it's a butterfly. Yeah, it's another butterfly. Why do you keep showing me pictures of butterflies? <laughs> <laughs> it's because that's all you're thinking about. You're not thinking about yeah, man in opposition to man. A man who's just finished yeah, killing his friend and now he feels sad. <laughs> are discredited, sort of this, these days. So psychology is also it's still very, very Freudian. Very, it's it's um, even the. I mean, this, the tech is, uh, as far as I can tell, tell. I'm not an, I'm not an expert in everything, but the tech is pretty flawed. I didn't find any obvious mistakes in this. Oh, yeah, no, it's flawless. Which you often find in techno thrillers and also in science fiction. You find no, it's, it's things, perfect. Uh, there's no obvious mistake here, or at least nothing that would have been an obvious mistake in 1972, except for one thing, and that is this video where the condemned prisoner is gassed to, to test the gas. It's done by the French. Yes, the French did, France did still have the death penalty. I think the last execution was in 1977. So it was very, I think it was abolished in the early 80s, which most people kind of forget how, how long. But the French were guillotining people. They were not using people as, uh, people as test subjects for, for gas. The French, uh, I don't, I don't French know about the French. But yeah, the but Americans were. Not, Using you know, firing use squads gas. for a long time, and you know yeah. gas chambers and all Americans sorts of things. Had gas chambers well into the at least into the to the nineteen nineties, probably after. No, no, the they, they the ran out of gas recently. The German, the one of the last cases was a German national, which is why this was a big deal. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no. She's talking about Germany, not. I understand. Yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah but um, I don't. I I don't know about France's gas chambers, and uh, um, yeah. also I'm pretty sure the French did not do. Medical did not do sort of lethal. This is the sort of experiment that the Nazis actually did. Did they would have? This is the sort of experiment a Nazi doctor could have done, could have done, and they did similar or similar experiments. And things like that have also been done, like testing. Oh, we've got a cool new nerve gas. Let's test it on a prisoner. A prisoner in I think what was it North Korea. So, um, but was like okay, no France. Sorry, I don't buy that. Is that France would do this sort of thing? Well, I haven't done enough research to disprove your I don't buy skepticism. It. I would probably have believed it if they would have been even skeptical with it. But with the U.S., I might have believed it more because a lot of the Nazi doctors who did all of these experiments on prisoners, some of them wound up in the U.S. afterwards and uh, and worked as doctors for the NASA because uh, because to use all the great. Uh, to, go, to use all the knowledge, to put all the knowledge to use that found while killing p- prisoners in concentration camps. Uh, yeah. Oddly enough, people complain about Werner von Braun, but they never complain about this really terrible Nazi doctor whose name I've forgotten who wound up at, at Nazi, who's really the sort of guy who should have gone to prison and never been let out again. Again, but yeah, 
But this was the one thing where I thought, like, okay, I don't quite buy this, buy this. So he should have used the as, oh, we have to smuggle in film from somewhere, from somewhere beyond the Iron Curtain, where I would believe that more that they would do this sort of thing. Or here's an early, here's a late test, here's a test from the Nazis, but of course the Nazis didn't have this nerve gas. Yeah, I, I, it's not, the name of the nerve gas is not real, but it's, it's based no, no, on right. real ones as no, well. Oh, so no, I don't begrudge them that, changing. But, uh, this one is not real. The, the binary gases do, do exist. And basically, uh, yeah. the way it's portrayed is very similar. It's um, absolutely correct, but uh, the gas itself does not exist. And I think the real, real deal is it's lethal, but not that quite that lethal. Yeah, and it, also, you probably wouldn't be able to to eliminate all of the, all of San Diego, which is pretty big as well. As and also probably because of California, pretty spread out. Yeah, well, I mean, but, you, you, you do better with a concentrated urban core, not San Diego. You do better with New York, Boston. New York would work. New York would uh, New York would only work in Manhattan. You probably would. Well, yeah, but by New York, I, I meant Manhattan because yeah. I think though. Manhattan, uh, this will this would work wonderfully in Manhattan. It would work very well in some in many European <laughs> cities, which are also close. Manhattan yeah. probably even better because of uh, very high buildings. I think you're missing the 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 point is he's not trying to kill lots of people. That's just a yeah. a, a fun. No, he, he, I know he's trying to kill the president, but he's trying to kill the no. president. But it's, it's, it's he's trying to eliminate the Republican Party. Something Paul is always yeah. going on about on Twitter, <laughs> which is it, also kind of well. Like okay, uh, maybe not all of San Diego. There's a lot of nice, nice, nice people living in San Diego, and there's San Diego Comic Con. Their collateral which would, damage. Course, be perfect time to do this. Do this if you wanted to eliminate half of Hollywood. But um, but I think this effect that I think, it, I, the I think Republican you just... Party is kind of funny today because uh, I suppose there's quite a lot of people who would not be particularly sad if uh, the entire Republican Party were eliminated. Well, yes, uh, it, it, things are very divided, which I think is very interesting because the time this book is being written, the time this book is being published, time the film is coming out, which came out in end of end of seventy two in December, uh, television movie. Um, who is the president? It's Nixon. Nixon. It would have been Nixon. It's never mentioned in the book, but it's supposed to be Nixon, right? Yeah, it was. I got I caught that at once that it was. It would have been Nixon. It was like okay, seventy two would have. Yeah, would have. And been this Nixon, is prior Nixon. to the uh, scandal coming out. Was, when was Watergate? Was it Nixon or the other guy after him fought? But no, it was Nixon. No, no, Watergate was Nixon, but Watergate wasn't known at that point. At the no. point of the day, uh, it probably had happened. No, but I just wondered. Okay, when was the Watergate thing? Because because uh, after Watergate, it was happening at the time. And, uh, of Carter this. was not uh, not elected until afterwards. Carter's the first one I the, the, actually the, remember no, being president. No, the, Carter's the two presidents later. 1972 was when the break-in break actually happened. So it's yeah, actually... So it would have happened already. Yeah. Uh, I have to admit I don't... I, I only have very vague knowledge of it. Because um, whenever I try to... Okay, this Watergate thing must have been really terrible. Well, And whenever I hear about it, it was like, okay, but this is kind of... Uh, the, the, my My basically... My uh, the way I measure political scandals, the one I think of as a Basel scandal, which happened in the late 1980s in Germany and which ended with a with basically um, um, the equivalent of a state governor getting murdered. He was yeah okay, it was supposed to be a suicide side, and he was found by a reporter, and the picture, the photo ended up on the on the literally on the title of a news magazine of the which is about our equivalent to Newsweek or Time. 
time and the photo of this dead guy, which I think nowadays should never have been published. It was a huge scandal. Scandal. He was corrupt. He spied on his opponents. He was involved in arms deals, and then he was murdered. I remember seeing this photo because my parents had subscribed to the magazine and saying that guy was never mur- was never that guy was murdered. If he killed himself, he would have he would not have gotten into a into a hotel room top with his full clothes on and not even taken taking off the the tie because he still had his full clothes and his tie on. But this that was a huge huge scandal. And then I heard about Watergate and was okay. Someone broke into yeah Bartles Bartles pals did that too. But no one ended up dead in a bathtub. What sort of scandal is this? Well, let's <laughs> well, it's let's not the cover up. It's the crime. Well, it's not the crime. It's the cover up. I should say. Well, let's just talk about what what actually happened because it's very interesting. One of the things that is interesting about this book is he's not an FBI agent, right? He works for the State Department, and he's he liked doing foreign work um but now state is a foreign this is a right like state department is a foreign secretary right it is it is however the names are a bit different (laughs) however as he says in the book his focus is changing from Mm -hmm. foreign to domestic and this is actually uh you know part of the part of the problem is operation mockingbird which is a, a cia scheme to infiltrate and propagandize people through newspapers and other media in foreign countries is now a domestic uh, affair. The, the, the thing that's happening in this book where a, a guy whose job is to operate on foreigners is now operating on the domestic uh, threats. And so instead of tailing uh, communists and uh, Soviets and foreign government players he's tailing a businessman and yeah, but the and, 70s was a time of domestic the, the 70s was a time when domestic terrorism i think also in the u.s it was it, domestic terrorism was a big problem in germany at in west germany at the time and the government spying on opening and, mail um, and so yeah well also lots of political unrest of course our political of course our our domestic terrorism were were far were far left radicals uh, also, they were not, let's say they were not smart enough to get to get their hands on earth gas. They were not <laughs> even smart enough to properly. Uh, they were, were not smart enough to burn down a building because they forgot that sprinkler systems exist. The so, the yeah, committee yeah, literally, literally. <laughs> the committee oh, to reelect the president was the mm-hmm. people responsible for this break in that was at the Watergate Hotel where the suffix gate is now affixed to any kind of scandal. Yep, it was just the name of the hotel. In yeah, I, I was shocked, surprised when I learned that, especially since the hotel apparently is still the Watergate Hotel. And how many jokes would those people have heard? Like, okay, if Nixon drops by, by just telling him he doesn't need to, he, he cannot, or something like that. I mean, if you stay at that hotel, you would make it. You would make a joke at the reception, wouldn't everybody? And <laughs> when I when I went to Washington, I was at a park in the Potomac River, and I was. And I was walking with a friend, a friend of the pod and person on the podcast, uh, Patricia Matson. And it was like, is that the Watergate Hotel? Yes, that's the Watergate Hotel across the river. Oh, my God. So the FBI agent who was eventually arrested and convicted of the crimes uh, for the president uh, was a former FBI agent, was named G. Gordon Liddy. He, along with other agents. He was an actor also, wasn't he? 
Well, everybody becomes an actor eventually, but he, he was an FBI agent prior to his his uh, working for the committee to reelect the president. Was breaking into a uh, an office for psychological records on his enemy, the president's enemy in the upcoming uh, contest to become president again. So Nixon's cover up was for something very similar to the kind of hack that happened in this book. And this is all written before the public knowledge. I I don't know what kind of uh, personal knowledge Crichton had, but he was very up on what, what people were doing as actual government agents. So maybe he had somebody in his family who knew about it. Maybe he was just following the papers very closely, but it's very interesting because it, it is the stealing of, of, uh, opposition research is something that continues to go on. But this is the only time where the scandal was cracked and made public and there was a resignation of a person that high because of such, uh, what they say, a third rate break in or something like that. It wasn't third rate. They were using, you know, uh, portable wireless microphones to communicate with people outside who are watching the building. And they knew what they were, they, they were well funded. And it, it, it actually is very interesting because it's, it's a, if you retire from the FBI to go work for a, a politician, you still have all those old contacts. And that's actually what happens in the book too, right? There's a mm-hmm. guy who quits. And he still has his old passwords and he uses those. And then there's John uh, uh, Graves, who is considering quitting, but likes the game too much, even though he knows what he's doing is immoral and pro- likely illegal. They, uh, they don't um, uh, abuse their arrestees or anything like that. But a lot of the surveillance they're doing is uh, very highly questionable. And yeah, I especially suppose no one would have complained because he did stop a terrorist attack, which would have killed a whole lot of people. Well, uh, this is also the 24 logic, right? The logic of uh, what, what counterterrorism unit that they had going for however many seasons of that television show. The spinning up of, of, of possible threats is actually like way more. Like, if you guys uh, have you been still following the Whitmer stuff, Paul? Because that was that was mostly FBI's ginning up uh, a plot to kidnap a uh, governor. It, the case oh, fell apart. There's this woman, uh, there's a governor who was supposed to be kidnapped by what was it? Radicals who were against COVID methods right. or whatever it was. Yes. Yeah, and there was uh, there was like eleven people in the van, and almost all of them were FBI informants. Yeah, we had a problem like that with our. Um, why we couldn't ban a ban a far right right neo Nazi party the party it could it was supposed to be banned and banning a party in Germany is very difficult it has to go through the Supreme Court and everything thing and the reason it was not banned twice is because someone said like basically half the party are are in for, are basically informers for the German equivalent of the FBI yeah exactly. And, and so, one of those informers were actually was actually involved in the terrorist in terrorist killings. Indeed, and so this there's a there's a like a a very strange situation. So, uh, the more you encourage this sort of thing, 
the more parent, like, this is why you had to take your shoes off at the airport and still do, right? Because one guy uh, came up with a plan to blow up the airplane using his shoes. The fact yeah, that he was... was a plastic explosive in his shoes, and I think he tried to ignite it with, I think it was a, was a cigarette lighter, which is like, okay, but that doesn't even work. Yeah, no, but yeah, notice... No, it, was a, it was a batshit, pardon my language, plot, and now we have to take off our shoes at the airport. But notice... Yeah, even worse is a liquid. Do you know why you're not allowed to take liquids on planes? It's because of because binary. It's a thread. It's a post thread about a... About liquid explosives being mixed in the plane toilet. Yes, Every binary. Says like, okay, you can make that, but you need a lot of time. You need like five hours in the plane toilet, and before that, people will have broken down the the toilet because they need to. But we are still not allowed to take to take a bottle of more water. Than, more than three ounces. It's like it, it is. It is like as I call it security theater, and it makes it feel like we're doing something safe to make people safe when it's really just a. Pain in the butt, and yeah, it's it's uh, basically just to annoy people. To annoy people, if you have a, um, I think it's not to oh, sorry, annoy uh, people. Much, uh, I think it's our airport. And, I think uh, it's to control people. Tube, which used to be really tiny, takes up like half the, the terminal building. Yeah, it's to control people, and that's actually the plot of this book. Right, is you take two gases and you mix them together to make one deadly gas, and the idea that people are going to take their shampoo and they're going to mix it with with uh, their hand cream and make a, a deadly sarin gas to kill everybody on the plane. That is a uh, the kind of consultation that Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell would be invited to the Pentagon to spin up scenarios of some domestic terrorist doing something terrible. Meanwhile, <laughs> actual foreign agents get training in the United States to do the very conventional crashing airplanes into buildings, right? Which has been done before. And, you know, it's... There's a movie from the late 70s where, uh, where an airplane is crashed into a building. building and it's it worth the airport center point building in London. Yeah. yeah. So, so, and uh, one day... Someone, but it had been done uh, in real so life, someone, too. They programmed it on September 11th one year. Yeah, a couple of years after it happened. And I'm pretty sure that someone at the TV station exactly knew what was in that movie. Well, it's also, you know, what the Japanese did, uh, largely. It was mostly the Japanese. The uh, kamikaze, but yeah. oh, those were the kamikaze attacks. The Germans also had the Stukas, was some, yes, but the Stukas did. didn't crash into buildings. The Stukas were dive bombers. They went down, bombed, and then, then flew away. The Germans, uh, because it's more difficult to, to convince Germans to crash yourself into buildings uh, than Japanese people. Even, even very convinced ladies were a bit like, okay. And there were still those living Stuka pilots. A lot of them, quite a few of them survived until, mm -hmm. uh, they're all gone now mostly, but they were still alive. Mm -hmm. I think my mother, also was a teacher, and my mother at least said, said she knew someone who used to be a Stuka pilot. Hello? I'm here. Hello? Okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. So, 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 so you were talking before about, um, Movie, um, the movie for this and other, other, and other, uh, properties that kind of, uh, relate to this. The movie I kept thinking about when reading this while listening to the audiobook is In the Line of Fire. Mm -hmm. Another one of those presidential assassination uh, movies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's the Mid one with, uh, with Clint Eastwood, right? Right. Mid, mid 90s, Clint Eastwood and Malkovich. Yeah. Clinton, mid 90s. Um, you have, you have a, you have, um, Treasury agent and 
He has an opponent who knows everything about him and wants to mm-hmm. manipulate him and still kill the president at the same time, except it's except it's by um going to be by gun assassination. But it's the same sort With of a thing. Plastic here. gun. Yeah. Yeah. There's a the, the here. I mean, it's the same sort of cat and mouse game between uh between them trying to outthink someone who knows you better than you know yourself. Mm-hmm. So I kept I kept thinking about the the very clockwork sort of uh, how, to, how to think outside the box. And we find that here in this novel here that, that, that our antagonist is not perfect. I mean, he gets caught because the because our, because our, our hero sets up roadblocks they normally wouldn't have. So it's like only thinking outside the box and trying to avoid the patterns that you've been conditioned to. I'm also surprised that they did not expect roadblocks. I mean, um, I mean, this guy is, is trying to set off... Um, Set of lethal nerve gas, uh, gas blocking off the whole area and evacuating the whole area would be a yeah, I'm not, I'm not most sure logical why, I mean, thing to do, obviously. Yeah, I'm not sure why our hero normally wouldn't have set up those roadblocks. I'm not quite sure I bought that. It's like, so, well, well, why wouldn't he? What? what yeah. I, I don't think we were given enough context to understand why he wouldn't have. And then so the switch over, switch over to something logical that catches the antagonist makes sense. But the whole... But the, the dead man behind the grave for half of this book, I wasn't expecting that, that basically our antagonist is dead for most of this. And we're just working out the clockwork implications of everything he set up. I mean, it's brilliant, but yeah. I didn't expect I was surprised it. that he died so early. I was like, oh, OK, I did not expect that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, his will continued beyond the grave. That's actually a very, very big thing. One of the um, uh, the guy who actually plays the um, baddie. In the movie is named E.G. Marshall. He's an actor. Um, mostly I know him as a radio drama host, uh, CBS Radio Mystery Theater. He was the host for that, has a great voice. Um, he plays the baddie, um, who we're told is a radical and he started his own political movement. And that's why they're, they're looking into him, right? Um, he also plays a character in a similar, uh, movie. Uh, called Absolute Power, another Clint Eastwood movie, which is based on uh, David Baladacci, uh, Baldacci, I guess is how it's pronounced, novel called Absolute Power. And it's about, uh, in the movie, uh, Gene Hackman plays the president, who's a widower, and his best friend, E.G. Marshall, who's also his financial supporter, um, you know, chief backer and uh, billionaire, uh, Gene Hackman cheats on uh, on um, his best friend with uh, E.G. Marshall's wife. And Clint Eastwood plays a burglar. So this is all like a remix, basically, of <laughs> of uh, Water, uh, Watergate, but with a sex, sex scandal in the center. And uh, uh, Clint Eastwood plays a burglar who witnesses uh, an attempted rape. And then an accidental murder of, of the wife by, uh, Gene Hackman, who, who's the president. So he's basically a, uh, a figure like Nixon, except he's lecherous, right? Um, and then the rest of the plot is, uh, what is Clint Eastwood going to do with this information? And what is the Secret Service going to, are they going to track him down? The important part though is, um, E.G. Marshall also tries to kill the president again. <laughs> um, and uh, he actually succeeds and they cover it up because the scandal is too much. So the the weird thing about 
about Watergate is actually that it it came out right that it it's not that such things had never been done before it's th- they're done all the time right all the time it's just it somehow came out and it was it because uh this guy's particularly unpopular well it seems so this whole book binary is premised on the fact that somebody would want to kill nixon so badly yeah, I was also will- surprised that it was pre-Watergate, because, or at least pre-Watergate being known, because I always assumed that Nixon, Nixon, he also actually, except for the Watergate thing, which even wasn't all that, out, he doesn't doesn't seem to have been that bad of a bad of a president. I mean, he he's he, I mean, I mean, yeah, he and it's a Vietnam, the war in Vietnam, which is a very good thing, good thing. Okay, a bit late, but he did continue it for a while. But at least he ended it. He talked. He tried. He talked to China. None of these are bad things in my book. And of course, talking. Of course, at least deciding. Okay, maybe we should talk to those guys behind the Iron Curtain. Was a thing in the seventies. Willy Brandt, who was actually mm-hmm. was a social democrat in Germany, also was the first guy who actually tried to talk or talk with um, with Eastern Europe. And he was attacked for it. At the, he also had to had to resign over a scandal because one of his high-level advisors turned out to be an agent of the East German state. Was a, oops. Was a, yeah, oops. Uh, East oops. German spy. Uh, spy, uh, spy. It was, and the East Germans did not want this guy, did not, never, didn't want this guy to resign because he was a good, he was, was good and he was trying to, to he was a, a social democrat, he was trying to, to talk to them. They were actually quite horrified when, they, when this guy accidentally resigned. My mother really liked Willy Brandt and wrote a really angry letter at the time to the party. Like, how can you, how can you let this happen? She once told me. It's a, it's a hard to get I was into. Just, the- I was really angry on behalf of this guy because, uh, and his family because he and his, he and his wife were, also the wife was sent to prison and the children were just, they had children. And it's- they were, the children were simply just basically sent to the, to East Germany. They were extra, they were not extra, they were, Deported to East Germany, where they'd never lived, and like, okay, take care of them. We don't want them. And the children were teenagers, and this is really the one thing which makes me really, which always made me really angry about this. This because what what was the thought of these poor children that their, their parents were locked up and then they were thrown into East Germany, Germany just because their dad was a spy and they were actually they had been living in West Germany all their lives. Well, yes, yeah, so it's hard I, to. I wonder what's happened to them. It's since. hard. Yeah. It's a little bit hard to understand why people would be so angry. I guess when you're thinking, oh, he's ending the war, he's making, making overtures of yeah, peace I towards mean, China. Uh, I never really got to got why people hate. I thought, okay, well, maybe the Watergate thing, but even even that wasn't uh, wasn't quite. Uh, well, I never really got why people let's dislike. Let's just also, like Nick think of a more modern analogy. In a more he modern... did a lot of good later on. He did a lot of good later on. He did, was involved in a lot of diplomatic things later on in his life. In, in it's often not for the foreign policy that people are hated, but rather for the <laughs> domestic stuff, which they have less power over. But uh, Nixon's famous for starting the war on drugs, which a lot of people have. Uh, okay, yes, that's yeah, that's from. Yeah, um, I mean, he, I, I associate more with Reagan. I, yeah, no, I hear no, you. That, yeah, Reagan accelerate, just say no and everything else. But Nixon planted those seeds. Nixon was brilliant, intelligent, and absolutely paranoid. And that's why Watergate happened. I mean, he was paranoid about his political uh, political opponent. And it turned out, I mean, 
if you look at the 1972 um, results, I mean, he crushed the Democratic opposition. It was, he was popular, but he was just so his paranoia and his obsession for power destroyed him. It's like it's it's Shakespearean how Nixon yeah what how Nixon's I mean, worst impulse that, that, um, that I couldn't even tell you who the opponent was at the time. Mm-hmm. The important important thing to think about is like in today's politics, there's a lot of people who don't like uh, the 45th president of the United States, right? They think uh, his election was caused by a foreign agency. They think that, uh, you know, he if he comes again, it's going to be the end of the union or what, whatever. There's a lot of, of passion uh, on against certain political figures but it yeah, works but the other way too right trump has actually trump deserves every bit of dislike he gets because he <laughs> was a terrible president he was absolutely inco- incompetent and terrible nixon doesn't strike me as particularly incompetent and terrible no he was he not incompetent he, no he wasn't incompetent that's yeah that's incompetent that's, that's, is actually a compliment in my view because <laughs> it makes you less likely to kill more people because you can't get your agenda done on the other hand, I was going to say that there's a lot of people who are happy that Hillary Clinton is, is making noises like she's going to run again for pre- president she's because not they want. Run, she's not going to run again. No. I'm not saying. I'm actually, not saying uh, whether she is uh, or not, Paul. I'm saying would, people would, are happy would, that there are news reports like this week that she's going to be running again. And the, I would wish that the U.S. would get a president who's under seventy. <laughs> yeah, um, yes, they're the, very, the, very, the, they're the, very, very old. The gerontocracy old. of American politics in general, not only the presidency, but also the leadership in both the Democrats and the Republicans is batshit, pardon my language. And I, I want to go back to the book and... I mean, what? okay, I can't say anything. We have a completely incompetent government right now. They're, they're all horrible. Horrible <laughs> because of the government, cabinet of horrors because they're... They're all complete. Most of them are the only ones in the only people in this government. Also, every day on Twitter, you see, uh, you see, um, politician name resigned, trend, uh, trending as a hashtag, hashtag because, yeah, they're, they're pretty terrible and lots of people from all sorts of, uh, hate them. Actually, the, the only guy who, a guy whose name I, the only two people in this government, and also they were called to resign, I don't dislike, I don't dislike. Like, and whose names I know. I don't dislike, of course, someone like the Secretary of International Development because I don't know their name. Name, But um, but the only two people is the the Secretary of Justice and a lot of people hate him because they say, like, okay, before we impose newer COVID measures, maybe we should find out if the the measures were actually effective. Effective, but some people hate him for that. And the Secretary of Culture, no, she's the undersecretary. She's not a full Secretary of Culture. Culture, whom I like because she's, well, she was a manager of a punk band and I think she's pretty cool, but she's being blamed for an anti-Semitic, for an anti-Semitic exhibit at a, at the Documenta exhibition, which is not really her fault because she's not the, not the curator or manager of the document. The Documenta people messed that one up and should have never exhibited that, that piece of art or should have told the artist like, eh, I'm sorry, we can't show this one. This one, do you have something else? Else, but, um, but those are the only two people in the guy. Everybody else is different ways of awful, I think. So I, and this is never my dad. My dad, my father says, no, we have never had it. We had a really incompetent government in the late sixties. Sixties, but yeah, 
They were not they were not not quite as incompetent as this one, but the one in the late sixties had more ex nazis. This one doesn't have any ex nazis, which is a good thing. <laughs> They're pretty much dying off. Uh, I, I wanna, I wanna talk about what John Wright's motivation is, and I note his last name is spelled W-R-I-G-H-T, but it mm-hmm. is R-I-G-H-T also in <laughs> the sound. Um, so he, he, he's, um, got a motivation, and it's not that he hates Republicans. I'm just gonna read this section. Um, perhaps you think that a few people have power high government officials, high corporate executives, wealthy individuals. But that also is untrue. Everyone is locked into a system which he has inherited and is powerless to change. We are all trapped, my friends. That is the meaning of the 20th century. It is the century of impotence. Wright's voice dropped lower, became more ominous. Uh, his face was grim. Impotence, he repeated. Inability to act. Inability to be effective. That is what we must change. And with that help of God, we shall. So the invocation of God. And then uh, c- continues down here. I showed you that film for psychological, not political reasons, he said, because it summarizes most of what we know of John Wright's mental state. The speech was given last year before the annual conference of Americans for a Better Nation. And then the next line, an extremist group. Uh, which Wright started and still leads. You probably never heard of it. It's small and has no significance whatsoever in national politics. And that's why they're spending all this time and money chasing after this guy, right? Over yeah. the, over the last few years, Wright has poured $1.7 million into the organization. The money apparently doesn't matter to him, but the lack of impact, the impotence, matters a great deal. He paused and glanced around at the faces of the table. They seemed to be paying attention, but just barely. Two were doodling on the pads before them. So one of these <laughs> guys in the film is named Stark. John Wright, he said, is now 49 years old. He is the son of Edmund Wright, the Wright Steel family. He is the only child. His father was a crude, domineering man and an alcoholic. John grew up in his shadow, a very strange child. He was a good student, learned quite a lot of mathematics, even made a minor reputation for himself in that field. On the other hand, he was an inveterate gambler, horse racer, and womanizer. The assembled men began to fidget. Graves nodded up to the projectionist who began flashing up slides. The first showed Edmund Wright glaring into the camera. Edmund Wright died of cirrhosis in 1955. John Wright changed completely when that happened. He moved to New York from Pittsburgh and became a kind of local celebrity. He was married four times to well-known actresses. Who does this remind you of? All the marriages ended in divorce. The last divorce from Sarah Lane occurred in 1967 and coincided with six months nervous breakdown for Wright. He was hospitalized for in McLean General outside of Atlanta for paranoid ideation and feelings of impotence. Apparently, he had been impotent with his last wife. And then uh, continues. So what is uh, John Wright's problem? He can't get it up. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and he's... Yeah, he has, uh, he has erectile dysfunction. So basically, Viagra, <laughs> if it had been available, might have prevented this whole plot. Well, which is also <laughs> a very, very, let's say... Later in the plot... Old-style Freudian thing, like, okay, it's always about the penis and, and impotence and so on. Yeah. So, and I basically, think... yeah. This guy has no political... Also, it's interesting, because it was late, it was the early 70s, I initially assumed his his group was a left-wing group. 
group, his radical group, but, and also because um, he was against Nixon in the Republican Party, but we never learn what sort of, what sort of, uh, and he's angry at Nixon yeah. for talking to China, which I think right. people on the left would have welcomed. So right, right. we never so really yeah. know what his political thing is. Basically, I, I, he's I, motivated by his penis and the way his penis is well, not... Well, that's, that's, that's the way it's being interpreted, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I took it as, like, he's he's right-wing and thought that Nixon betrayed betrayed the right by talking to China. So that that, that plus his impetus issues means, well, I must kill Nixon now. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, he did, right, did murder this last wife, wife when she divorced him. He did murder her next her next boyfriend, or no, I think they weren't married yet, so he was a but he did murder her next boyfriend. He he did he blew the guy up with his car, with a car bomb, which is mentioned somewhere. Some kind of Texas oil guy, and he and he blew him up with a car bomb. I'm just going to read another section here. There had been a shift in orientation for state intelligence. Nobody cared any longer about the movements of the eighth assistant deputy minister in the Yugoslav government. They were much more interested in the number five man in the Black Panther Party or the number three man in the John Birch Society, or the number six man in the Americans for a Better Nation. So notice the Black Panthers, uh, if you want to go left to right sort of thing, that's one side. And John Birch Society, that's another. And then we've got Americans for a Better Nation. What do these three organizations have in common? They don't like how things are going domestically, and they are political parties trying to change things. And what what and is the all nineties uh, are all the kind of seventies um, radicals. The Black Panther Panthers were radical. Well, of course, well, they they had legitimate uh, racism was a legitimate problem and uh, problem and continues to be, to be. And this was how the John Birch I think were really some kind of really far far right uh, right people, mm-hmm. and uh, we don't really know what the Repub- what the, no Americans for a Better Nation actually want because. Uh, they want a better nation. They want mixed gods. They want a better nation is what, what yeah, we're told. But, uh, I mean, uh, everybody would probably, everybody from the far left to the far right would probably say they want a better nation. They just have very different ideas of what a better nation mm-hmm. would look like. Absolutely. And so they're on him like glue trying to prevent this, uh, this, uh, attack, right? Terrorist attack or whatever you want to call it. Um, but they actually don't know about it until he starts basically saying, "Hey, I'm trying to get your attention, right?" Yeah, yeah. He what he does all he makes all these weird purchases and uh, and he I mean he knows he's being, he's obviously knows he's being tra- being trailed and and he makes all the of these weird purchases and basically it tells him like, "Okay, guys, could you perhaps put the puzzle pieces together? I'm mm-hmm. kind of dangling all the clues here." Yes. Yeah, which makes me think like the Riddler or some Batman villains is like, come on, yeah, well, come on, I'm having he has something uh, of the Riddler in him. He yeah, I'm playing play this game here. Play along. Don't don't yes. don't be so slack jawed about it. Uh, on the other hand, it also reminds me of those serial killers who who always of always uh, exchange elaborate messages with the people hunting. And of yeah. course, like, the like, Zodiac killer, probably, Zodiac, exactly. The Zodiac guy probably was. I think he was in the late early seventies. I yes. didn't actually know of the Zodiac Killer until this movie with Robert Downey Jr. came out, and I watched it and was like, "Okay, it's a serial killer movie. Why is it a retro setting? Setting? Oh, yeah, probably because DNA would mess everything up. Up and also cool retro setting. Then like, okay, wait a minute, they didn't catch the guy. What this sort of serial killer movie is this? And then I realized it was a real case because yeah, I real case know and we still it. don't know. We don't yeah. know. We don't really hear a lot about serial killer cases in other countries. 
it's it's interesting because I think that in real life this is a thing. Uh, I'm I'm not super familiar with the Zodiac Killer, but I am familiar he with did, a lot. Did any rate rate send these riddles and messages and so on? He was one of those guys who apparently thought he was a he was a Batman villain. Yeah. yeah, he yeah he thought he was the smartest man in the room, and you know so, yeah. and, and 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 he was never caught. So in a sense, maybe he was Jack you know? the Ripper uh, did similar stuff. Uh, yeah, Jack's, but uh, I think a lot of Jack the Ripper messages were not. I think they've proven that a lot of them were not sent by Jack the Ripper. Oh, clearly. And I clearly. and I think some of the Zodiac Killer messages probably. I mean, they, apparently the newspaper still gets messages occasionally from the Zodiac Killer. Yeah, and a lot of them probably aren't from the Zodiac Killer either. Indeed. Um, in real life, uh, most serial killers, like there was one who was in uh, my city, um, not super uh, interested in, you know, playing cat and mouse with the police, more I interested is, a, in raping women crime. and killing them, um, yeah. and, you know, having the, disposing the of the bodies active, and stuff like that. We had a guy active in Hamburg at this time who murdered uh, elderly prostitutes who reminded him of his mother, mm-hmm. his mother, and he murdered. There we and go with the Freudian again. Because his apartment, no, the, another apartment in the same building caught fire, and the and the fire brigade came and they noticed a terrible smell in the apartment. Also, other residents of the apartment had complained about the terrible smell, but they blamed an immigrant family. Their cooking was responsible. Instead, the guy under the roof was basically keeping chopped up women in his attic. And then oh they found God. the shopped up women and caught him. That's, was that's a quite, some terrible was, there cooking. was a movie made about it. The Golden Glove, which is uh, pretty pretty graphic. And also because the victim, Americans really didn't, it ran on the Berlin Film Festivals by Fatih Rakin. It's, I think it's a really, really well done movie because it captures the atmosphere and the bar where this guy hung out. He hung out in a specific bar on Hamburg St. Pauli, which is uh, the one of, which is a really sort of, the sort of bar that there were a lot more of at the time. It's called. It's considered the toughest bar in Hamburg, St. Pauli. St. Pauli. I know where it is. It is. It's like if someone wants to see St. Pauli, it's like, okay, do you want to see the real, real thing here? I can I can take you to go to this to that bar. And it's about this. And this is a. And the bar still has all the clippings on the wall and so on, and so on. And the movie is really. It's it's really really well made. It captures the atmosphere. They they recreated the bar. But American viewers were like, okay, but this is not what I expect of a serial killer movie. It's also graphic. It's so bloody. And the, the victims are old women. I actually said to him, okay, so you only want to hear about serial killers who murder college girls? Yeah, right. It's very, um, yeah, right. So especially since we had like, I don't know, I think three movies about Ted Bundy in the same year or something like that. And this guy only got one, but I think it's a really, it's well done, but it's also very, very graphic because they show it doesn't look pretty if you chop up women, if you chop up dead women. There's, um, another aspect of, of this, why he's doing it. I think interesting. It's not particularly well developed in the, in the novel, but, uh, you know, other than to make a buck, which John Lang was trying to do as, uh, Michael Crichton's pseudonym. He's trying to make money to pay for his university education. Um, and that is, he's trying to kill himself. The reason he's playing this game with, uh, John Graves, right? Who's going to bring him to his grave, um, is because he wants to be killed. So the fact that he escapes, uh, you know, gets in a car and drives and then gets killed by, cops it's suicide by cop it's a very traditional way of doing things and most of the time when we hear about school shootings or anything like this 
it's be, it's not so much about um a particular ideology as it is about a particular frustration with life uh that the person is having and this is a kind of a dignified way it's kind of weird to think of it that way it's kind of dignified way to make your life have meaning um by doing something political and so it does it need not be that nixon was the worst president ever anything like that what's interesting is that john graves is a mirror to the other john he's uh john wright He's, oh yeah, the whole binary thing. Yes. Yes, and and it's like one is doing something he doesn't really want to do, but he can't stop the game, and so was the other one. Except okay. that Grace doesn't necessarily want to. I'm not even sure if right because he did arrange apparently to uh, to escape to some beach country to some place. Uh, was it Jamaica? At any rate, he uh, he did arrange. Escape, but I'm. Not, I don't think he really expected to actually get away. He probably didn't expect to to get shot by cops uh, trying to to get out of the garage. He probably expected his guest to kill him uh, to kill him along with half of San Diego, or however or however many people he would have killed. He, he wanted to. Oh, there was a black guy in the in the book. Now that I think about it, at the airport. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. With the, the scrubs, uh, the, the caretaker. Yes, that's a, that that guy is explicitly described as black. Uh, he has and everybody the, else could also be black. We don't get a lot of description. Yes, we get one of it the, was uh, also, through dialogue that I got it. Yeah, there's a single. There's only. I mean, the cover of the hard case crime. Hard case crime has some of the best covers. It does. Which is actually whenever you don't see them a lot in German shops, but whenever I see one, I always snap it up and up uh, and uh, barely look at what it is because simply the covers are so wonderful. They are. And it has this naked woman, woman, a very 70s looking naked woman. She looks like she stepped out of a 1970s uh, shampoo ad or something, ah. sitting in front of the lethal gas containers and covering her, um, and covering her nakedness with, with her limbs. Mm -hmm. So you can't see the most interesting parts. <laughs> and which is kind of funny because it's kind of false advertising because of course the poison gas is in there. But there's only a single woman in a speaking role in this book, yeah. and that's White's girlfriend or fiance. The other she thinks he's his fiance. She's yeah. not. She's not, and uh, she she shows up halfway through the book for I think like four or five pages, mm. answers a few questions, and uh, because everybody else is male. And most important uh, things she answers for the psychological point of view is that uh, on the night before he's gonna do the big deed. They they made it three times. Yeah, they had sex three times, and apparently, so apparently he wasn't impotent then. So no, yeah, and that's actually yeah, that's actually the point. I think that that it's this is uh, it's fun because Crichton trained as a doctor. Um, a part of your doctor training, even if you're a physician, is a little bit of psychology, um, mm -hmm. and he uses that to good effect in writing this book. I gotta tell, I gotta tell you, it's like just a delightful, enjoyable read. And I'm like, I'm gonna read the more of these Lang books because I, I had a feeling they were gonna be good. Um, b because of the era, because he's, he's, it's before he does his later long, long books and sequel books and, and all the Hollywood attention. It's just raw paperback novel style storytelling, which is super good. It's a it's a great genre. It's it's limited 
to the length of the paperbacks on the spinner rack at the drugstore. And that market was terrific. It's, it's like in the same way, if you, you're picking up a weird tales in the 1930s, you're picking up a paperback in the 1970s. It's just the thing to do. It's, it's like, you know, when movies were great, <laughs> that's the time to go to the movie theater. When books were great, that's the kind of time to go to the drugstore. Do American drugstores even still have paperback spinner racks? Because I no, remember no spinners. seeing them in the They're at 1990s. the market ends. I remember seeing being at a Walgreens to buy salt tablets and the, the cheap aspirin because it's much cheaper in the US. US and seeing all seeing all those spinner racks with I think it was mostly romance novels at the time. No yes. sense fiction at right? Yeah, yeah. If there are any spinner racks left in any stores and few and far between the eyes, yeah. It's mostly romance, which of course sells like hotcakes and nothing yeah, else. Of don't, course, yeah. don't, there's the, there's no more of the techno thriller. Like, I mean, I think the we equivalent. Still have some, we still have some. It's not a spinner rack, but we still some. Yeah, there's racks, just not spinner racks. Absolutely. Which is like mostly some some romance and and crime novels and so on. And the latest so political biography. And I, I, I think that ecological niche now is the airport bookstore. Yeah, the airport bookstore. Yeah, we, we, which has a limited selection. It's mostly romance, techno thrillers, some lots political of, stuff. Lots of bestsellers. Oh, oh, and lots of bestsellers. Have, sometimes you find good stuff at airport bookstores, but a lot of the time I really have problems. I mean, I did buy a hard case crime at an airport bookstore in Amsterdam once. And also I actually picked up a book about about um, a non-fiction book about uh, about magical rituals at the airport bookstore in Amsterdam, which is like I never expected. To <laughs> that's a, yeah, Amsterdam, that's is, yes, Amsterdam is a bit different, but normally yes. airport bookstores, bookstores. I mean, I remember being stuck in Detroit, and the only the only vaguely readable thing I could for hours, and the only vaguely readable thing I could find at that airport bookstore. And of course, Detroit had a terrible airport at the time. It's probably better now. Was um, was a BattleTech novel by Victor Milan, who's mm. since passed away. Right, but yeah, it's also. But yes, it's, uh, we we no longer we have we want even the spinner. Sometimes you have spinner racks. We have we still had and still have dime novels, novels or pulp pulp novels, which are like the old dime novels. Only um, I think they're sixty-four pages, so they're novel at length, romance, uh, western, crime, and so on. And those used to be sold in spinner racks, and those spinner racks are almost all gone nowadays. If you want one of them. Sometimes I do because I collect them. I don't fully collect them, but I, I like checking them out and reading them. Then I have to go to the to the train station bookstore to actually find them because the, the supermarkets no longer carry them. Apparently, they make more money carrying carrying oh country star living and so on. Yeah, magazines. And... What was the name of that other uh, hard case crime you have uh, by John Lang? Drug of choice. Drug of choice. Is that the one that he co-wrote with his brother? Uh, I don't don't know. It's the one with a. There's a lady with a red. I think there's a bit at my at the end of my books. Is yes. Uh, doesn't say it is. No, it's probably not. Brother. Then I think there was another drug one. On a, oh, dealing. Yeah, it's, it's I a blurb think. Here. On dealing. a secret island in the Caribbean, bioengineers have de- have devised a vacationary saw like no other, promising the ultimate escape. But when Dr. Roger Clark investigates, he discovers the dark secret of Eden Island and of Advanced Biosystems, a shadowy corporation underwriting it. Sounds good. Let's do it. 
Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, I was also I was like, okay, I kind of enjoyed this one. Let's let's forget the other one I have, mm-hmm. which was the only two I could get at the. I could only this was the the, the outlet bookstore only had those two. Otherwise, I would have bought more of them. It says 166 pages here, so that is there an audio book? Yep, yeah, I, I believe that one's of it. Oh, maybe not. It, Let me check. Yeah, that there, therein lies the trick. Not all of his books are available, which is kind of weird. Um. You would think every everyone would. Be yes, um, does Hardcase normally do audiobooks because? Um, uh, they're uh, they use the covers, um, but they're done through Brilliance, which is basically uh, Audible. Mm-hmm. Audible is Brilliance. It's the same owner. Same company. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So the John Lang books include Binary, Easy Go, which um, is seven hours seventeen minutes. And by the way, that that one's set in Egypt, and it's a tomb. Tomb book, so I want to read that one. Odds that on, that's good, yeah. Odds on by Michael and uh, Michael Crichton, aka John Lang. That's his first John Lang book. I, I believe that's eight hours. Drug of choice, there it is, four hours fifty four minutes. And uh, zero cool, five hours forty minutes. The venom business, ooh, eleven hours fifty five minutes. Uh, and grave descend, which is the shortest one, is three hours thirty nine minutes. How does how does how does uh, September eighteenth work for you, Cora? Um, at the moment, it works. September tenth wouldn't work because that's when I have my thirty year high school re- high school reunion. Oh boy! Oh yeah. boy! It's also scratch <laughs> one is available. Nobody well. would have said like I'm not going. I said like well, but I have three Hugo nominations. No one else has them because the only other German person who has three Hugo nominations is Simone Heller. There was a, a Hugo nomination is Simone Heller. Well, did not have- go to my high school. So, yeah, yeah, I want to. So yeah, I want to go. Want to see what happened to the other people. So, uh, would you like to make drug of choice your drug of choice? Yeah, I'm fine with it. It's a good excuse to. Uh, it had actually moved up on my my to be and my reading pile. I just have to read something for Galactic Journey first because it's it's due uh, in a few days. But it, uh, but I thought like, okay, I enjoyed this one. This one, let's try. Let's try the other one I have. Paul, you gonna put that on the sketch? I am already doing it. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's from 1970. It's interesting. Um, the the copyright page on the original says uh, John Lang asserts the right to be identified as the moral uh, the moral right to be identified as the author of this work. <laughs> and then, of course, later it's copyright renewed as by uh, Michael Crichton. Um, so he got his morals mixed up somewhere along the way. <laughs> I think that's really funny. <laughs> I know how you feel about copyrights and stuff in general. Um, speaking of which, Mickey Mouse is coming towards the end of his 95 years of copyright. Uh, and also... Um, it's not likely they're going to extend it again. Maybe they will, but... the you know. Did you guys see the dedication? I, I don't think it's in the audiobook. I don't think so. I think it's what's the um, dedication. For Jasper Johns, whose preoccupation provided solutions. Now, Jasper Johns, I believe, is uh, another pseudonym for... Um, it, there's an artist, but I believe that's another oh, oh, that, that reminds That reminds me of, um, as far as dedications and stuff, um, Angry Robot mentioned, like, like, you should check the... You should check the uh, 
the, the first pages of our books for fun little uh, bits. And it turns out that on all their copyright pages, they have little bits that kind of relate to the actual book you're reading. It's like nobody apparently noticed this till they finally <laughs> put it out. And he's still looking up. So looking at all my angry robot books I had in an ebook, like every single one has a tiny little Easter egg and, on every copy. I actually page. have my paperback copy of Drug of Choice here, and it's shorter than the one for Binary. Yeah, it's a little thinner, right? Yes. Yeah. I think it's, uh, yeah, it goes uh, 208 pages. It's nice. And then the rest is, um, yes, and there's a preview for another book, Odds On. So Jasper Johns is actually a book by Crichton about the artist Jasper Johns. Um, and he's like a modern art, art, artist painter. Um, so I, I think, uh, I'd be willing later on after I've read this next one to do a later Michael Crichton book, even one of the longer ones that I haven't read because he's a real intellect. He's not, um, a fake. And, uh, I appreciate his clean he's writing. A very small, smart guy. Yeah, <laughs> very tall and very smart. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, di- director, medical doctor, writer. I mean, he's got. He's not. He's a Renaissance man. Was past that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, a lot of the times, Cora, you hear things about books, right? Oh, this book is this, and this book is that. But until you read it for yourself, <laughs> you never really know what the actual book is like. Yeah, you do. You should. I mean, um, this is something I found out when I did all of those uh, 1940s science fiction. Mm. And I read all of those 1940s science fiction stories and uh, found out that a lot, uh, a lot of what, also reading a lot of the old science fiction and fantasy for Galactic Journey, one thing you find out that a lot of, uh, lot of the, um, the received knowledge like Astounding was the best magazine and so on is actually wrong. Astounding published some very good stuff and a lot of dross which we have just forgotten because it was awful. Awful yeah. and uh, some very good good works have been forgotten because they appeared in the wrong magazine or because some insolidists didn't like that magazine or something like that. There's a, there's a lot of people who need to be championed and there's a lot of people who had too many champions. <laughs> you know? Um, if, if you, uh, talking about copyright, Paul, um, I don't even think it is really mostly about copyright. I think it's about mostly about having champions. So, you know, who has had far too big a champion is L. Ron Hubbard, right? Oh, yes. (laughs) They like publishing his stuff. They like publishing his stuff more than they like pretty much anything. Nowadays it's his cult, but he also, he wasn't even all that. I mean, uh, Steve his, J. Wright, his writing's okay at yeah, the, at best. It's hacky at, at, at Arnold, on the regular. He had a lot of Elvin Hubbard. He was like, oh, it's another Hubbard story. But notice that <laughs> he gets okay. a lot of publication compared to Margaret Sinclair. Margaret yeah. Sinclair didn't have kids. The estate is going, you know, to some cousin in. Difficult to get in touch her. with the estate. Yeah, Gideon so, Marcus wanted to reprint a story for hers in Rediscovery and had real problems getting in touch with the estate right. of Marcus Sinclair. So that's the major problem is, is there's, there's champions for garbage and there's, uh, what are called orphans for everything else. And basically that's, that's the way to go. So I, I, I think. Uh, some and at of least Michael you can Crichton's find kids. Margaret Sinclair's estate. There are a lot of uh, there are a lot of writers in who were in weird tales and so on, where 
absolutely on other, other pulp magazines. You don't know who those people were. Sure. Well, you don't know. You maybe you have a name, but uh, you don't. But uh, they had one or two publications, and that's it. And you don't really. You can't even find this. Sometimes you can find maybe most a of those. Most of those people didn't copyright renew, so for the states, it's not a big yeah, problem. Yeah. Okay. It's um, Germany. I go by. Uh, I usually for anything I have to go by Life Plus Seventy because that's yes. the law. And then yeah. you still have trademark. I'm still like I said, Doctor Mabuse, Norbert Lack, also died in 1955, so it runs out in 2025. Then I could maybe do my modern Mabuse. But yeah, then probably the the film company who which uh, got which actually got the copyrights and which has the trademark rights rights probably would still stop me. No, not not if you know what you're doing. The thing is, is uh, trademark, trademark has to be enforced. That is, yeah. they have to actually be publishing I can't call stuff. It Mabu. I will have to do something like the French Conan because this is a funny thing that the uh, Conan, the Conan stories, everything by Robert E. Howard is in the public domain in Europe and has been since two thousand. Six, Pretty much, because yeah. he, died, he killed himself so very young. Mm-hmm. Young, he killed himself in, in 1936. So it's uh, but in the but uh, so in Europe it's public domain, and you've got a lot of co- of uh, unauthorized Conan comics who are better than the authorized ones. But they can't call them Conan because that's trademarked. So they go with the Sumerian or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> the Sumerian. I actually have some of those. They're not better than the U.S. ones. They're, uh, US. they're they're okay. I've got I've got both, and the American ones are pretty bad, but they're not also adapted. Really, we get caught up on the trademark thing a little too much. It's easier just to go with the title of the story or, as it originally was yeah. published, and then you don't have any kind of problem. But they they'll lie to tell you they have rights that they don't have. So you can't just go by what someone else would do. You have to know. You have to know what they're willing to sue you over and what they're willing to lose over because that uh, Conan Properties International, CPI, it's changed hands a few times. They're going to go with so some other... the hands of the Chinese now, eh, ultimately. I think the it's... Guy, the manager is a guy from Sweden who's apparently yeah, big, big Fred fan. Malmberg. Yeah, Malmberg. He's, uh, he was just at Howard Days and... Mm-hmm. Uh, Talked about oh we're planning new new books and yeah. but all the big names in fantasy like Brandon Sanderson and uh, what uh, what else uh, SM Stoll said like okay but none of these people are actually actually the sort of people I can imagine writing Conan the no. Conan superhero they're just corporate <laughs> owners and they're 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 worse than estates because estates you could call them up and say hey I wanted to do this and then it's like what oh I guess whatever. The the only purpose for these things is to suck blood from from yeah. everyone else. Corporate owners all. Um, I know someone who's uh, grand, I think it was a grandfather. He was a pulp writer and wrote uh, backup stories for the Shadow about a female detective. And the son wanted to reprint them or do something with them. And but it turns out that he doesn't even have the copyright for the stories his yeah. own grandfather wrote. Oh, Generally, yeah. wrote, uh, that was work for hire for. And Street and Smith's Condé Nast and Condé Nast said, no, no, give us a shitload of money. Yeah. I mean, you can't even buy the original Shadow novels anymore because um, James Patterson wanted to write one, which might have been a nice YA book, but it's not a Shadow. Yeah. In fact, I believe, I believe that movie Darkman was made because they couldn't get the rights 
to the shadow. I think that that was yeah. the story. There is a shadow movie from the 1990s. Oh, it's a piece yeah, of garbage, yeah, too. Well, which is uh, really nice and pulpy. I actually like that one. It's so I didn't different like from it. The yeah, it's, it, no, it's got Tim Curry in it. Tim Curry has a great role in it. It's like, yeah, it you, you, can't, you can't control my mind, shadow. I like the Dark Sorry. Man movie. <laughs> the Dark Man is also a really good one. Yeah. But it's generally, I wish they would do the spider, the, which could, is probably also easier to get, especially since the spider still is, is being reprinted or was until finally recently, because the spider stories are really like very, very, very intense. So I was, I was mentioning about how the Cora, trademark works. Hollywood. You know, Cora, every once in a while, Marvel will publish uh, a one shot of something. And the, the reason, like, for example, they did an Unknown Soldier. Uh, that was a DC, obviously. DC did an un- Unknown Soldier print, uh, I think it was last year or the year before. Um, the reason they're doing that is not because they want to bring back the Unknown Soldier. They're just not into it, right? The reason they do that is because that's how they enforce the trademark. They say, look, we are still publishing under this. Because in some point in the future, we might want to use this character and we need mm-hmm. to have shown... So it is, it's, it's the same reason there was a, like a Captain America movie in the early eighties or whatever. The, it was because they were trying to keep well, a contract and uh, enforce yeah, a trade. Well, I think this is also that, that, why that, that, the that, Andrew that, that, Garfield Spider-Man movies, I think, were made because uh, the rights were due to revert to Marvel and uh, yes. Sony. Yes, Spider-Man uh, 3, yeah. Yeah, Sony well, didn't want to give them, give them back to Marvel. Also, also that early Fantastic Four movie, which never got released. Yeah, there's a find. Yeah. Oh, yes, the very early one. The one which yeah. never was, because I was thinking of the one from the early 2000s. Can you imagine being an actor the 90s one, yeah. or a scriptwriter working on, on a project that you know is not for commercial release and for a artistic release, but rather just to fulfill some contract so that in the future someone else can make money? Imagine working on that is the kind of shit work it must be terribly depressing yeah you, you like to pay out. your rent that's the kind of work that is right it's not the kind of work that and and the thing Even is if it's, it's not a good movie i think at least they, they, they would like to see it released never mind that some not very good movies nonetheless become cult movies or successes it's it's the opposite of getting a camera going out in the woods and filming a a thing because you you're excited to make a a product. This is contractual obligation, <laughs> so that it, it, someone it, it can preserve work, profits. Yeah. Exactly, and it's it, it might as well throw it in the meat grinder afterwards because you're not trying to make a product for humans. It's just a contractual obligation. That is the kind of horror that we need to avoid at all costs. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. I think we're pretty much done here, right? I, I think we're done because, especially because yeah. I have gaming shortly. So, and my oh, players yeah. are already waiting for me because I'm GM. Yeah, then enjoy your game. I also should uh, should check on my parents if they're okay. And Cora, uh, is this the first time we've actually been on the podcast together? I think we were on another one together. I can't imagine it was. I, I know. I, 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 I know we've missed each other a couple of times. Yeah, we missed each other. I couldn't do the, the code equations one. 
one, but we were on one together, I think. Huh? I, I know I've, I've done panels with you, but I don't think I've ever done a panel. Yeah, we've been on a panel together too. Yeah, so that, that I remember, but I think this is the Actually, first Actually, this practice. was a two. Were you on the Black Amazon of Mars one? Paul? Yes. Okay, yeah. Uh, yes. Me too. So we that's were right, on one right. together. Oh my, yeah, that was yeah, that was a couple months ago. Okay, yeah, okay, so okay. This so. is actually a two podcast weekend for me because yesterday I was on the I was part of the short story Hugo short story panel called the oh, right. podcast. Oh, oh yeah, my friend Sarah Elkins was on that. Yeah, Sarah Elkins yep. was also there. Sarah Elkins and we actually had three no four Hugo finalists on the panel. We had um, we had Amanda Wackerhook of the Hugo Book Club blog. We had. Mm -hmm. uh, Haley and Laurie, I don't, I don't know their last names now. Of um, Hugo Girl of and Hugo Hugo Girl, yeah, yeah, you had, you had a, you had a all star cast. Yeah, yes. it was like a, was like a, we, we really have four Hugo finalists here today, and none of them were short story finalists. And in here, Jesse got two Hugo finalists. How do you feel about that, Jesse? Jesse, yeah, Jesse, Jesse has got two Hugo finalists. Now. I think, I think it's a mistake. I think you guys are <laughs> focused on the wrong things. <laughs> uh, I know. I know I'd it's like not to popular. have a shiny rocket. I, I want a rocket. I, I think, I I think one, there's a lot. Nice to be recognized. <laughs> yes, well, you can get one on eBay. They're not that hard to That's get. That's not the same thing. I, I agree, uh, it's not the same can, thing. Uh, I think originally Hugo is pretty. There were some on eBay for which were used as used for movie, which was ever movie props. And there, it was an original Hugo rocket, rocket with a, but it was a movie prop. Pop was a button. Harlan Ellison died recently. There's a big stack of his available. You get a Harlan no. Ellison one if you want. Not the same thing. I want my name. Also, on. I don't want Harlan Ellison's. I would. <laughs> I can. Nothing I, against Harlan, but um. You can get well, a. Yeah, be careful. He'll he'll sue you from behind the grave. He probably <laughs> would. Yes. You could get it uh, like sanded the, off and put I, it. But most of the Hugos are actually. Actually, in either with families, some of occasionally come up for auction, but uh, most of them are either with families or they're in museums or or somewhere or, or where the landfills. Where, where, they're going to be in the landfills because people throw the throw that shit out. You you know all the trophy hockey trophies and soccer trophies. It's yeah, the same stuff. Children, hockey and soccer trophies. I think. Hugos are, I think most Hugos are account, some of the retro Hugos have never found their, their home because they couldn't find, uh, right. find any, uh, any descendants. But, uh, I think more, or people, people didn't have descendants, but I think most of the, but I think there are very few Hugos who are, which are unaccounted for. Most of them ended up, up with, uh, somewhere on, uh, occasionally one comes up for auction, but I think it's, it's, um, it's probably easier to get than an Oscar. An original Oscar is almost impossible to get. Of I, saw, get I saw one of those on eBay the other day. An original Oscar? Not a reproduction? Yeah. Because I think they don't like those new selling. I mean, I've seen an original, I've seen an original Oscar behind glass, but uh, it's not. And I've actually held. The only big trophies I've held, I've held a Hugo Award, an original one, and I've held the Bambi Award, the German, which is a German media prize. Price and it looks it's bam it looks like a, it's a Bambi it's actually it's a, well if it's a it's, prize it's, it's a cash yeah, it's right a, yeah. a prize and is cash as opposed yeah, to a trophy and uh, it's one of the prettiest and I've actually held it and this one was given to the THW the German Federal uh, Disaster Relief Organization because there's always a charity T prize and they got this one and they put it in there they have a school where they train people for to for working on earthquakes and 
dam breaks. It's really interesting. And I've been at the school and toured it. And also even I actually taught English there for a while. While And so I've seen the, and they have this bum behind glass in a, in a, in a locked cabinet. And so I've seen it. And uh, then the guy said, oh, there's a bum. I said, wow, there's a bumby. That's so cool. And she said, oh, do you want to hold it? And he unlocked the cabinet and gave it, put it in my hands. Like, here, yeah, hold it. <laughs> Paul, why did oh, you yeah. put this so far ahead? There's a spot on 814 that would have fit. Oh, because I just went to the most, the latest one, just because, you know. 814 also works for me. Unless why don't we a, put it ahead then? Uh, don't oh, have to okay, have okay. It. It's eight, eight, with Worldcon, it works. I'm putting it in there, Paul. Okay. Okay, 814. Okay, I've got to go. I see my players are already okay. messaging on Discord. So yeah. it was All a right. pleasure to talk to you again, Cora. Have fun. Next week we have the Seawolf, don't we, Jesse? That sounds right. All right, yeah. give me the audiobook. You know how it goes. Uh, I, did get, I did send you the link to the German, I think at least the trailer for the German TV adaptation didn't, from the 70s, didn't I? Uh, nope, but put it in the chat. I'll I don't um, remember. Or email it to us, yeah. I'll, I will send you the link. Send, I it, send, send it to me on Twitter, even better. I can send it to you on Twitter because it's a very, see very it. good adaptation of the movie. And uh, it was a. And it was also quite famous at the time. Nice. Sounds good. Take care, Thank everybody. I'm not sure if you can watch the whole thing, but at any maybe if someone is streaming it. I need some anyway, subs. subs. English subtitles. Otherwise, it won't work. My German Yeah, it wouldn't enough. work, but uh, it's also... Yeah, my, 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 ger- my German is Ein, zwei, drei, vier, fünf, yeah, sechs, sieben, acht, neun, zehn. I can't attend it. That's it. Visually, it's very, very well done. It's very well yeah. done. Let's see. Yeah. yeah. Should probably shine from 1971. Oh, yes, you can. The whole thing is apparently on, on eBay. Here's a trailer. I will give you the trailer. The trailer is a bit relevant. Yeah. Okay, trailer. Right. Bye, Paul. Bye. Bye, Paul. I'll put the trailer. Der Seewolf. Der Seewolf, yes. Der Seewolf. Der Seewolf. Here's a trailer, and there's apparently all of part one is here. Yes, it should be all of part. It's it's uh, two hours. It's probably all of part one. Is it a TV movie or a TV series? It was a TV. I think it was a multi. Was a sort of TV miniseries done in the 1971. And it was really. I obviously couldn't see it back then because I wasn't born. But um, it was. <laughs> it was repeated. Sometimes it was repeated a couple. It was rerun a couple of times, and I saw it during one of those. It was very very well made. Tools. A duration long. Let's see if it's available. Uh, Ilsa, She Wolf of the SS. Not what I was looking for. No, no, not that one. Dazzy, it's a Dazzy one. Ah, I see it. Starring, There's um, one here, but is ah, it, it was English a four part miniseries. Run about Christmas 1972. Oh, this is 2008. Well, that's not the one I was. No, this would be the, the 1971 one. Yeah, I'm not sure how long it is, the book. It's, uh, it's four parts, and uh, if each part is like two hours, then it would be quite long, actually. I'm thinking because the audio part one, The part one I have here is, uh, is uh, the part one I actually found online is two hours long. It's, a, it's 11 hours and uh, 11 and a half hours for the book, so I probably won't yeah. have time for the... For all the adaptations of the Seawolf. I know. This is a two-hour eight version I found. This is uh, The trailer is actually from 1971. Ovid Ambrose Bierce wrote, The great thing, and it is among the greatest of things, is the tremendous creation 
Wolf Larsen. The hewing out and setting up of such a figure is enough for a man to do in one lifetime. Boy, Ambrose Bierce had something to say, didn't he? But there is this guy who played uh, Wolf, Lars Wolf Larsen. His name was Raymond Harmstorff. He's, he's dead now by now, but he was really... He he was pretty much perfect for the role. For the role. He nice. was this uh, very much... Yeah, he became famous because he squeezes an, a whole egg. He has a, an, an uncooked egg. And uh, if you, you take an uncooked egg in your hand and try to squeeze it, you can't break it. Break <laughs> it. Wow. I and did he not did. Know he that. could break it. Which is, which is how he became famous. He had to do the, oh, do the axing. Axing all the, all the time. It's the first, the, the other one is from 2008. It's the 2008 version. The first trailer one. That's the trailer for the 1971 version. Thank you. Which is very, very, I think there's also the axe squeezing, yeah, the axe squeezing sequences in the trailer. And uh, Raymond Harmstorff, very young and without shirt. How do you like, uh, how do you like your um, Charles Bronson movies? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. There was, no, it depends. I'm not a huge fan of all of Bronson. I've seen some, but he's been in some good things and some not so good things. I, I think he's pretty much the same in every film. It's just him playing yeah, himself. Yeah, he always plays the same guy, more yeah, or less. Yeah, he just plays himself. Um, and I'm not sure if he was, but he plays the same guy. I'm not sure if it was if Charles Bronson was this guy, but... Uh, no, I... But he no, always plays the same guy. He plays himself. He plays Charles Bronson on film, you know? I, like, I don't yeah, know he if... plays the way we imagine Charles Bronson was. was um, a, there were a lot of these... Uh, I actually forgot. I don't know what's the English, but there were a lot of... They were on TV. For some reason, Charles Bronson and those Clint Eastwood uh, Dirty Harry movies. Are they actually called Dirty Harry movies in the US? Yeah. They were on TV a lot in the 1980s. So if you wanted a, a thriller with a bit more action, that uh, you had to watch either Eastwood or Bronson because of, that was with, oh, some Italian stuff, some westerns and so on. The one because that, that was up. on TV a lot. They apparently acquired the TV rights and they just ran the, <laughs> ran the stuff. stuff so this, uh, this plot sounds yeah. like... Exactly like uh, uh, the one for Taken. Remember uh, the plot yeah, for the original Liam Taken? Neeson, wasn't it? Yeah, Liam Neeson. That Listen was to the description the here. An American expatriate, uh, Charles Bronson's wife, Liv Ullman, and daughter are kidnapped in France by a drug smuggler, Liv James Ullman? Mason, from his past. It's the same plot. <laughs> yeah, it is. And then he has a very special set of skills. Was that sort of movie because he was this very... She was this, this very arthouse Swedish, uh, I mean, okay, Max von Sydow was also this arthouse Swedish guy, and he did, he played Ming the Merciless, he was in Star Wars, uh, yeah. was Max von, he was, he did uh, all the, all the, he was in Conan the Barbarian, he was in the mm -hmm. Solomon Cain movie, but Max von Sydow, I think, was a fan, but Liv Ullman, she really usually only shows up in these very arty Swedish movies about people in difficult Well, marriages. it was a co-production, Italian-French co-production, starring... Yeah, okay, maybe that, because she was on the European... She was part of the European film circuit, mm -hmm. and a lot of European films are actually co-production, so maybe that's how she got, got into it. I've seen a lot of his co-productions in I Italy, or there was one I watched recently, uh, was set in, uh, I want to say... Uh, Argentina, but I'm not sure what country it was set in. Um, maybe Actually, Mexico. This explains why they, if he, if he did a lot of, co if he was in a lot of these co-products. I mean, of course, he also was in some Italian westerns, or at least made in Italy westerns, western Bronson, which is oh, why, yeah. this might well be why we got so many of his movies on TV, because uh, the European co-productions were easier mm -hmm. to acquire. 
and yeah. to, to get the rights for them for the Hollywood production. They're cheaper. Domestic production promotion as well. Yeah. And then Europe, it's, um, <clears throat> and most movies here are, co are co-produced with uh, several countries and authors. Actually, one of the reasons which I didn't realize until I was an adult was why, why some, why so many Europeans disliked Arnold Schwarzenegger, even though he was one of ours. Ours who, who, who did good and went to Hollywood. They hated, they disliked him because he bypassed the European film circuit. He just went straight to Hollywood with, from his bodybuilding and that was like, oh, but he's not supposed to do that. He's supposed to make some movies here and then go make the jump to Hollywood. That's and so a, they, they didn't like him. I just sent you one here. Uh, Jose Ferrer and Charles Bronson, uh, 1984 movie called The Evil That Men Do. And it's a, I, I want to say set in Chile. Um, and basically Bronson is a retired assassin who goes to, uh, work, uh, for a personal convincing reasons, basically to kill, uh, a British torturer who's working for South American, um, regime changes. Um, and based on a Condor? novel. I, I, I DM'd it to you. Operation Condor was something else, wasn't it? Did I get this mixed up? What I uh, Operation Condor was a real American. Operation Condor was something else, wasn't it? I was pretty it, sure. No, oh, yeah. it's no, not it's a movie. A, I must have gotten the. Yeah, I it's must a political the, American. It was plot. A, the, Yeah, it was a plot in the. Sorry, I must have. Oh yes, sorry, I got it mixed up. Mixed up with league with the uh, with Legion Condor, the Condor Legion, which was a Nazi thing, yeah. which was in a German uh, regiment, which uh, was uh, was active in uh, in the Spanish Civil War. And then I just sent you Love and Bullets, Charles Bronson's. Yes, I'm pretty sure I've seen. This is, rings, the plot rings a bell. Jill Ireland, that's his real yeah, life Jill wife. Yeah, Jill Ireland was his wife. And this one's it's filmed in Switzerland. Wife. And by Lou Grade, who was the British producer, the guy who did a lot, of, he produced a lot of things, including a lot of these 1960s uh, spy shows and so on. This is 1970, You Can't Win Them All. Tony Curtis oh, and Charles Bronson are American mercenaries <laughs> in the 1922 Greco-Turkish Civil War. There's one scene where it's in a bar, and there's a modern mm -hmm. Canadian flag. <laughs> it was pretty yeah, silly. Michelle Messier is a, she's a French actress, and she played Angelique, which is a series of historical novels, novels by sort of bodice rippers. And uh, I read uh, not all of them. I think there's lots more than I read. But I have I read a bunch of them as a teenager. They were very very exciting because lots of there was lots of historical action and swashbuckling and. Uh, Literally everything in the kitchen. She ends up in Turkish harem and she, and, um, her husband is executed for witchcraft and then he shows, then he returns as a, as a pirate and yeah, it's, it's bonkers. And they filmed a few of those and the films are pretty bonkers too. <laughs> but I don't, I I don't know if all these YouTube links and such will work for you. Um, but I think I can, I'm not sure if they, some of them don't work in Germany. Yeah. Really this is a great poster. I mean, there's Tony Curtis with uh, two Tommy guns, and Charles Bronson only has mm -hmm. one. Yep. And there's Michelle the whole, Everybody in that movie has a Tommy gun. <coughs> Michelle Messier also has a Tommy gun. And she's it's not a bad Tommy movie. Gun. It's not a great movie. Um, you can actually, it works. This someone works. Behind the Door, 1971. French film shot in the UK starring USA actors. Anthony Perkins is a brain surgeon. Uh, 
who has an insom amnesiac uh, Charles Bronson murder his wife. So <laughs> Anthony Perkins has uh, train uh, convinces Charles Bronson to murder his wife. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were quite a few of the American actors active in Europe. You know, Bronson, of course, was also he was not of those Italian westerns, and then there was um, Eastwood was um, George Nader, who actually wasn't a, wasn't even that big a deal in, in the US. In the US, he was um, because I think he was uh, yes, he was gay and was about to be outed and went to, but he was a huge deal in Germany. He was Lex Barker was very active in Europe. He was in a lot of movies in Italy and also Germany. Germany. So these, uh, some, actually, some of these people I remember when George Nader died, and uh, they didn't mention him the Oscars uh, in memoriam. I was furious because he, George Nader, he's famous, but uh, he wasn't famous in the U.S. There's a podcast I listen to that's pretty good. It's called um, uh, Golan Globus Theater. You know, uh, Golan Globus. Oh yeah, Globus. Those, those, uh, yeah those, I, I don't know. Those, those, those things were Israeli or something. They they yeah. did uh, those. Um, Called? Action movies. They did a lot of Bronson yeah, movies. Action movies. I didn't. I, I didn't know that the people behind the Lemon Popsicle movies, which were also a lot on TV in the early 1990s, because there was, there was sex in them, so they were on. So they were on private TV. TV mm -hmm. only. And uh, and those uh, action. Those 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 um, those um, uh, what is anyway? Uh, um, those Chuck uh, Norris action movies. They did a lot of those. And also the Michael Dudikoff's ones, I think, also. Yeah, they did. They did uh, basically all the B-level, awesome, weird eighties. Yeah, yeah, all those really, really cool action movies yeah. that I really loved, loved, loved watching on late night TV. TV, and I um, and I was shocked when I learned that the same guys produced those lemon. I don't know if you've ever seen those. I think they're called lemon popsicles. They're called. Uh, I haven't I seen that. The English name. I will let me show check what the English name of it was. I just sent you by DM the link to this podcast. There, it's named after that company, but it's they just they just do movies for, like Golan Globus movies. So yeah. their latest was uh, a show on Excalibur, 1981 mm -hmm. movie. They yeah, did Top Gun the week before. I think it has a very young Helen Mirren in it. Yes. As, uh, I think she's Morgan Lafay. Or she, she, um, I don't know where. I think, no, I think she's Morgan Lafay. Oh, yeah, they're called Lemon Popsicle. These, uh, weird, um, sex and pop music comedies is from Israel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> made in the 1970s. Nice. Very, very weird. Weird. And, uh, they were on TV a lot for a while. Like, all, all they were on permanent reruns for a while. I like these guys. They're out of Detroit, and so they're very cynical about <laughs> about how uh, it's a it's a comedic, and they're very uh, uh, charismatic. I would say. Yeah, I should probably check that out because and, uh, I like all of those. I like a lot. I like a lot of these trashy, uh, yeah. trashy weird. The B movies were actually usually better than the A movies. The Clearly. A movies uh, for a while, I watched a lot of these movies. The Vietnam. For a while, I watched a lot of Vietnam War movies. They did a uh, Rutger Hauer month. A lot of them. Them. I think it was because uh, because uh, when I asked at school, the teacher, well, history teacher, maybe tell something about the Vietnam War. I know nothing about it, but it's apparently very important. And the teacher was like, "This isn't the subject of our class." Yeah, but we're the history class because history ended in 1945 at the time. <laughs> nothing after what was history. Yeah. So I watched Vietnam War movies and. So there's a B movie once. 
were often were usually a lot better than the than the A than the A movie ones. They have a lot to them. So back in September, they did a whole Rutger Hauer month. So they did five <laughs> Rutger Hauer movies. I've actually seen he was he of course also came from the European film circuit circuit because uh-huh. he was um, Dutch, and I've actually seen him very very young, way before Blade Runner and uh, Hitler and all of those American movies. I've actually seen him in European movies. Yeah, very, very, he very, did. Very he young. did one with um, Paul Verhoeven. Yeah, uh, Turkish Honey. He wasn't Turkish. No, I was, it was a World War II one. I can't remember the name of it. It might have been Yeah, Black. Was, uh, he was in several Paul Verhoeven, Paul Verhoeven movies. He was in yeah. uh, he was in Turkish Honey, which I think was uh, the one which made them famous, which is uh, which had some really hilarious scenes and then some. Yeah, I'm not sure if I need to see this uh, to see this in this detail, this great detail. And he also was in some he was in some German thriller from the early seventies. I think he also might have been in some of those uh, those St. Pauli Davidswache movies, which were which were crime thrillers set on the in, set in the red light district of Hamburg, Hamburg, which are quite interesting for what it looked like at the time time because it doesn't look like that anymore. The red light district, and also there are some they're really very very well made thrillers. A guy who wrote them was a Jürgen Roland, he was from Hamburg and he, he had very close connections to the police and he wrote some very, very good thrillers. He died a few years ago, but he, he was, uh, he spent, he was decades writing, writing really good crime scripts. Well, it's a weird, there's a weird review here of their podcast. Uh, <laughs> born on Almuric as the twin godsons of a she wolf and a man bear pig, their arrival on earth heralded by Prince shredding this, the, Theme to Airwolf on a sitar made of stars. Tim, the golden-throated, and Griffey, the band from Mohegan Sun, oil up, beer up, and slip into hot tub of lava to review the finest, freshest, juiciest action films and television shows of the 70s and 80s. We're talking Baywatch Nights, Get Even, New York Ninja, Giallo, Black exploitation. It's kind of depressing how many of those I've seen. Musicals, also, horror. Also, episode on Murder She Wrote, which is kind yep. of hilarious. It's a great show. Ralph Bakshi, yeah. Eurocrime, Neil Breen, Zombies, Girl Hitlers, and Werewolves. Avoid the acid pit. Embrace the star. The taste of J- Steve James. That is a very good review. Yeah, it is. Beastmaster Two. I didn't even know there was the Beastmaster Two. Oh yes. Oh, uh, yes, the Dark Angel film which was, was not the TV show with uh, Jessica Alba, but the one with Dolph Lundgren. So one of the, one of the guys there is our age, um, and the other one is, uh, probably about 15 years younger. Um, mm-hmm. and the, uh, the older one, um, his, his, um, he can do impersonations of, uh, like, uh, Jason Statham and, Oh, so many good impersonations. He's like really good at it. He doesn't do it that much, but like, oh my god, it's so good. Oh yeah, they've got a lot of uh, Ratke Howard. I must seeing a lot of Ratke Howard ones. And again, it's uh, it's. I'm not sure if it's depressing or happy, but a lot of these movies are. Oh yeah, I've seen that one. It's uh, there's a lot of movies you've seen and a lot of you haven't, and um, it's a it's a super enjoyable show. They they come out on Wednesdays. And then there's in some... the Diabolic, I'm actually surprised that uh, that anybody in the U.S. had seen one because that's an Italian one, I think. It's good. It's good stuff. They they yeah. uh, pick good. It really looks like a good podcast. It is. It's 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 very important to uh, find good podcasts because there's a lot of crappy ones out there. Oh, um, I think there's also a lot of good. I mean, I found a uh, my 
since I started interviewing, uh, interviewing SFF-related podcasters, I found, I found way more podcasts to listen to. Also, I'm getting more depressed with the Exit Hugo finalists because I found so many good ones. Yes. Invitation yeah. still stands if you ever want to get, be interviewed. By the way, but um, yeah, I don't. Uh, I, 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 you can, you can talk to me on your podcast when you make one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like typing more. I've got stuff to do. <laughs> oh God, Immortal with Lorenzo Lamas. Sadly, I do remember that one. <laughs> Uh, I remember most, yeah, lots of movies I've actually seen years ago, and uh, often uh, I, I enjoyed them. But a lot of the times they're, they're gone from the, they're gone from the, they're gone from the circuit. They're no longer being shown. Yeah, I've seen, I've literally seen most of those. Ice Pirates. Oh yeah, I remember that one. Yeah, I saw that when it came out, and I was like, oh my god, this movie sucks. Yeah. <laughs> It looked so. It appeared so cool. It was. It, uh, but it's really, it, it was looks a, like it should be good, but it's not cool a good movie. It looks so cool in the trailer, and the actual movie is like, mm, what is this? Yeah, it. it now, what's that uh, at the time when I would have watched any science fiction movie, no matter how bad? If it yes. looked vaguely like Star Wars, that's I was why they made it because because we yeah because uh, there were people like us exactly. who were watching it. Metal Beyond the Stars, of course, actually pretty good. And the original Beast, the one Beast Master, which I actually remember existing. I don't didn't know it had a sequel. Oops. But yeah, it looks like a good podcast. I will certainly check them out, especially yeah. since they yeah. watch a lot of they discuss a lot of movies. I remember enjoying when I saw they're, them. They're, they they do a good job. It's basically uh, they do a story summary, um, mm-hmm. describing the scenes, but it's comedic. So. No, I mean, some of those movies do invite comedy. Mostly they they do, yeah. They're often quite silly. (laughs) They are. Um, The one I suggested that they eventually did was... um, uh, It was Rutger Hauer uh, and Mimi Rogers um, called Deadlock, also Wedlock. And it's about... Oh, yes! I remember that they they are locked together by some kind of colors which will explode. That's That's exactly right. Uh, in some kind of futuristic prison, and they can't uh, yeah. move away from. This is actually quite a common devi- device which shows up in quite yeah. a lot of. It's in the first stuff. Running Man movie at the beginning. Yeah, the exploding color, and also that they need to stick together. This is, of course, a yes. special. But, but into the, it's a girl boy matchup, and they're on the run in California. It's usually a girl and boy. Yeah, boy. usually. It's a, it's a modern version of the, the two people are chained together and have yes. to work together to escape the. What What's really the, interesting the about that one? Tony Curtis and Sidney Poitier being the, the two prisoners escaping yeah. from chain gang, chain mm-hmm. together. And Tony Curtis is a racist, and Sidney Poitier is of course black. <laughs> and afterwards, they like each other. Yes. Um, uh, what's interesting about that one? They didn't pick it up, but um, the the science fiction being set in the future aspect of that that particular movie. It's actually really, really, really well done. It's just the movie's a piece of shit, so you don't notice it. But, um, like, they have shots of the news. You know, he'll be reading the newspaper. And uh, if you freeze frame it and read what it says, it's actually quite interesting. Like, the the future scenario that they built up. And for some reason, all the cop cars, um, like, they have weird writing on it. It's actually Korean. Um, and, like, you can do, like, uh, sort of a... Uh, better understanding of what that s- horrible scenario is from. It's like, it's like it's based on a really good book and the movie sucks, but 
but it actually isn't based on a good book. It's just that the script's pretty good, and the way it's put together is very schlocky and cheapo. Yeah, I mean, uh, Mimi Rogers and um, Rutger Hauer are not bad actors. Oh, they they're terrific, super they're charismatic. They can, uh, it's, it's, um, and he's a wi- he plays a wimp. Movie with two good, they had a good script and two good actors. Uh, and he, he plays movie. like a, a computer hacker wimp. So he's not playing his usual, you know, cool, tough guy. He's he's playing a, a like a, against brand. Uh, it's it's pretty terrific as a as a piece of of weird his entertainment. His first movie was actually a sort of uh, sort of sex comedy, so he didn't always play the, the tough guys. Mm-hmm. No, he's good. He's a good actor. I mean, he chooses bad movies a lot as well. Blind Fury and yeah, yeah, he, he definitely did. Oh, all right. Yeah, so I think I also need to go because I need to have dinner and so on and check on my, my what my parents are doing. Because yeah, they, my mom is not still not well and they may basically dumped her on us. Yeah. On Friday, on, no, on, on Thursday they dumped her on us, back on us, and uh, and she's still not very well and uh, well and actually worse than she was before. So yeah, I need to check on my parents if they're all, all right and so. Uh, all right. Thank you very much. Okay, so see you, and uh, yeah, we'll discuss Drag of Choice sometime, and I think we're doing the Star King in two weeks, aren't we? That sounds right. Yeah, okay. Talk see to you later. Then, so bye-bye, Jesse. Bye. Oh, in a care home, because I just dumped her, basically dumped her back on us and totally drugged her up to her guilt. Wow. To, uh, Your mom's a fish. I'm just finding this out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, uh, no, no wonder you enjoy Jesse, Lovecraft story so much. No, Jesse, no. <laughs> she just said, "Drunk to the gills." Um, yeah, she was. <laughs> they gave her so many. Uh, they don't. gave her so many. They gave her. It's actually it's a, it's a mild opioid, but it's an opioid, and you can almost these those are almost impossible to get in Germany outside of uh, unless you're dying or you're in a hospital in a controlled setting. And uh, they, I suppose they may have given them her to her in the hospital directly after a hip replacement operation. But the care home just gave, continued giving five of those pills to her. And then I said, okay, five is obviously too much. We will try to cut it down, down first to two per day. And then I said, do you have pain? No, and no, no, no. She apparently doesn't have pain. So we are not giving her those pills at all. And I still have a one, was a 100 pill pack. I have no idea how that those, that such heavy painkillers even came in 100. No, what? no wonder you were late for pack. the podcast today. Yeah, <laughs> enjoying those pills. Well, I did not um, take them. But, uh, <laughs> by the way, Paul, don't ick the shame uh, Cora's mom. <laughs> I'm not ick the shame. He has actually met her. <laughs> um, I want to um, yeah. ask you, Cora. Do you have um, uh, an ebook reader that, uh, like a Moby or uh, other things? Yeah, I have. I have, um, I have a Kobo and uh, Tolino, the German one. Uh, oh, I can't. They both take EPUB. I've got EPUB. Okay, I've got an EPUB. Do you have any way to read it binary. on a computer? On your computer, you almost certainly have a way to read on your computer because you make eBooks. Yeah, is that it? So they're <laughs> in the it. chat. If you want to download them, uh, there's an EPUB and a Mobi of the book we're doing today mm-hmm. for searching things up. There was something I had to specifically look up. Yeah, I have the Excel book right next to me. Yes, but oh, it doesn't, even, it doesn't even, do searches yeah. the way, same way as a... No, it doesn't do searches, oh. that's right. <laughs> no, unfortunately. Um, I was looking at... Marissa had a photo of some book, and uh, there's 
uh, line that she wanted to show. And I, I saw the line, but I was more focused on the millions of flag tags, you know, those uh, markers for not marking up your book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the book was like full <laughs> of flag tags. Um, and uh, it's a way to go, but I, I don't find it, um, it improves the finding. If, if you're put in 500 of them, it just makes it harder. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, searches are definitely useful as long mm-hmm. as you remember the terms you're looking for. All right. Yeah, that's going to be a problem. Um, oh, you look for the right, uh, right phrase in the wrong book, which is yeah, something I've done. Oh, well, that's possible too. Um, let's see. Uh, is there any old news we need to cover uh, with regards to podcasts upcoming? I don't think so. Let me just check. Um, uh, the Midwich Cuckoo Show is going to come out on Monday, tomorrow. That's going to be a good one. I mean, I know publish. I know publishing has a weird life where you publish, where you write something, it takes forever to publish, unless you're still publishing like Cora. But your podcasting is like podcasting seven months later. Oh, here's a podcast. That's the good news. <laughs> and and by the way, um. Guess what were you talking about in that one? I guess Paul might know already. We're talking about Roe v. Wade. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and because well, um, I mean, I mean, it was in the movie. A lot of abortion other things in, in the book. So, you That's know. Exactly right. Kind of it's topical. always timely, Paul. That's the thing. Is It's always timely. Yeah. Um, when you read a good old book, it has a lot of uh, staying power. All well, right. For Midwitch Cuckoo's Roe vs. Wade is timely, of course, because uh-huh. it was before, uh, probably it was even before, I don't remember when the UK legalized abortion, but it was, they did it before Germany, which is why, uh, well, and also the Netherlands, that was, those were the places where German women went when they needed an abortion. The Netherlands, of course, easier to get to, but UK is also possible. Right. Actually, it's still not fully. It's still not. It's uh, no. It's sort of. It's it's still criminal, but no longer persecuted in the first three months. Three months or something. It's twelve in the first twelve weeks. So it's our abortion law is pretty terrible in Germany. You know, in Canada, we don't have any. Yeah, that would that would be my wish that we just uh, ditched this whole law and law and say because obviously no doctor is going to to abort a, a perfectly healthy untroubled pregnancy. Uh, pregnancy two days before the due date that's not going that's never going to happen no matter what some what some uh, people people think i think all late-term abortions are usually tragic are extremely tragical cases yeah cases and that would be my wish that we have no and actually the one we have now was an improvement because up into the early 1990 up into the 1990s if you wanted you could have an abortion in germany uh, only if you were raped if you also, if you, um, if the life of the mother was in danger, danger, if the child was, um, if the, the child had severe impairments, um, and impairments, or if there was a social indication which meant that the mother was poor or ah. already had five children and so on. So you had to basically prove to someone, someone, I remember that my mother, when she was in a, when she was in forties, that she actually talked to a doctor and says, uh, says that he would, uh, that she hoped she would get, get an abortion if she needed one. Wow. She didn't return out. I mean, and I was, was, ter- and I always said as a teenager, it was for me, I was like, okay, if I ever need one, I'm going to, I'm going to Holland because it's like one and a half hours 
hours drive, I can easily get there. Get there, mm -hmm. so I was like, I'm going to Holland. And then they liberalized the law that now it's you can have an abortion in the first 12 weeks uh, and afterwards only for certain fetal abnormalities and um, in, and if the life in the mother is in danger. But you have to go to some kind of, you have to have mandatory counseling where they tell you that it's absolutely wonderful to have a baby and all sorts ah. of legal benefits you get. And this is really, it's patronizing. It's terribly patronizing. And then, uh, and until I think it was only last week or so, the same day that the US decision came out, came out, um, even if you, you could, even if you had your, had this, this, this certificate that you had counseling, you had to find an, finding an abortion provider was pretty much impossible because if a doctor mentioned somewhere on the website or in the information material, we're doing, a, we're offering ultrasound, blah, 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 and abortions, lots of things, things, then that was illegal advertising. You just have to, you have to have a t-shirt yeah, that has so a baby with a So you basically had to be crossed out. to know where a doctor was. Yeah. Well, sometimes the counseling center would give people addresses, but um, of course that depends on the counseling center. If you go to a Catholic one, they're not going to give you addresses. True. So it's pretty obvious. So for me, basically all my reproductive life, it was, okay, should I ever need one? Thankfully, I never did. I will go to the Netherlands or maybe the UK, but mostly it was the Netherlands simply because it's so close. <laughs> Hey, Cora, have you ever read the Michael Swanwick story, Radiant Doors? Um, no, I don't think so. Name doesn't ring a bell. Um, it's it's ostensibly about a, a slightly near future society where refugees from the future come into the past and we're, the UN and everyone else is trying to figure out what do we do with them. And the main, the, the main, character, in, main character gets on this whole bit about talking about the anti-sex propaganda she had to deal with in school the whole you have to you have to take this sack of flour and carry it around and treat it like a baby <laughs> sort of thing it, it's a very weird diversion in the middle of this really dark yeah. and evil story about about this this uh, future society and how it's dealing with these refugees and where they're coming from and everything else. The question is why are they why are the refugees coming back into this not very good society? Uh, because apparently the future is even worse. <laughs> I don't want to spoil it because I'm not Jesse, but the the, la the 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 last two lines of it are like a shot to the heart. It's like oh that's evil, but you know Michael Swanwick's short short fiction particularly is often very pointed that way. He by design. His novels are sometimes a lot softer that way, but his short stories he um he doesn't hold back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, have you read any Michael Swanwick, Jesse? I'm guessing I no. I don't need to because I already read that story. It's it's called um Over the River and Through the Woods by Clifford D. C. Mack. Um but it's just kids going back in time to visit their grandparents. No, that's a different that's a different thing entirely. It's World War Three. It's a different Story entirely, Jesse. That's a good one, but... Um, That's a good one, but not the same story. How would I know you didn't spoil it for me? Um, maybe we should talk about <laughs> Michael Crichton instead. How about that? Uh, all right. Um, all right. Uh, I do have gaming today, so I need to get my uh, thingy. Uh, all right, all right. Um, I was just trying to uh, see if there was any... Um, good uh twitter beefs that i could start but i don't know if there's anything that's i didn't see anything right now but it's uh but like i said i haven't spending been spending less time on twitter yeah twitter because we had to deal with all sorts of uh, mother related 
related mm. stuff. Like this carehound. First of all, they first they dragged her up and then they basically said like, oh no, we will have to. No, we can't keep her for another week. We 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 will going to be giving her back to you tomorrow. Someone else needs a space to to dump off the grandma to go to to Mallorca or something like that. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's probably not literally like that, but it is actually. They said like, oh no, all the short term carehounds are full right now. It's holiday season. The people dump off their their relatives hmm. to go on holidays. <laughs> Well, at least everybody's getting care. Yeah. Uh, my no, mom obviously. just moved over to Vancouver Island, and I spent the whole week uh, packing up her mm-hmm. stuff. She she left on Tuesday, but the handoff oh. was on Friday, so oh, I was yeah. I was there uh, pretty much all the waking hours and mm-hmm. packing stuff up, and uh, you, you accumulate a lot of stuff, especially if you're a weird lady like my mom. Yeah, all people accumulate a lot of stuff, right? <laughs> Somewhere in between, I also found myself uh, myself looking up something in a in a in a large um, in a large file little file called insurance, and I wanted to look, and there were literally insurance policies that uh, had long since expired because we moved to a different provider, and uh, and stamped envelopes from I don't know the 1960s, 70s, or 80s. 80s. I was like, okay, basically, I should. I was was really tempted to because there was nothing useful in there. In there I couldn't even find. I was really tempted to just chuck the whole file somewhere in the in the trash can and uh, put it on fire. Wow! You should have yeah, mailed those stamped envelopes. And my parents tend to accumulate all sorts of weird uh, documents, but for some reason, the, the reason they only go up to like to two thousand after a certain certain point, they simply are no are no because I just wanted to know okay how much does this insurance policy cost? Oh, it must be in that. Uh, how much does insurance cost? What's the premium? And it must be in that file, but I would say the last thing I found was in 2015 or something. I don't know. Mm. They said, uh, fuck it after that, and they didn't bother saving any of that. Yeah, uh, I think they, they, they probably was paid. Also, I have to go off to the bank because uh, their stupid online banking system is so annoying. <laughs> annoying. Yeah, 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 you, yeah, yeah, you're I complaining about that in the Discord I that this bank is so stupid. Way too much money. For something really, really, uh, accidentally paid way too much money because of the stupid the way their online banking system is set up. That's set the up way normally. They like it. Yeah, now I have to go to the bank. Like, okay, this is obviously normally. Also, they used to actually call you like, oh, are you sure this is a correct? Hmm. Yes, it's a correct payment. Yes, it's a um, correct payment. And this time, which were, were obvious, was very obviously was ridiculous. Ridiculous. Uh, they they just let it go through. And uh, now the problem is that. Um, that um, English has a point for the decimal uh, at a, at a, de- a decimal point. In German, we use a comma, and the point is used to to indicate thousand uh, to indicate everything over thousand. So, where the comma in the, is in the U.S. is in the U.S. Yeah, I, I, and I, I and I got the comma and the, the I got the, the the point and the comma mixed up probably because I just been translating something or writing in English and used the point. And the, and normally this is not a problem. It just either doesn't accept the point of the German system or recognizes it as a comma. But this one thought, oh, look, it's a, she wants to, she wants, uh, she wants to, to pay, uh, pay over a thousand, thousand, euro, over a thousand euros and, uh, and did that. And, and I did not catch it. Catch oh, it because I've been doing wow. like, now I have to get the money back. I, since since I get warranty data from my German colleagues, they their their spreadsheets, everything is in commas instead of yeah, decimal it's, points. Uh, it's, it's like of course oh, it is. They probably um, 
Also, um, if you have Excel spreadsheets, it does not calculate correctly if you don't. No, use it. I have. To, I, no, I've comma. Never, I have this. Uh, yeah. I, I because I have a German version of Excel. I need to use a comma when inputting prices for taxes and something like that. When I when I do the, the tax when I do the tax list, and if I um if I accidentally mess up and use a point, then it does not calculate correctly. And at so, least it's not not um, having to call the bank like um like sorry, this is a miss. Um, this is wrong. Could you please, uh, could you please uh, solve it? Ah, uh, it sounds annoying. <laughs> Let's do some show. Let's do some show. Yeah, some show. Mm-hmm. Some show. Here we go. Uh, Jesse, Paul, Cora. Yep. <laughs> Paul, you got your recorder going? I. That's a good reminder. I have my recorder going now. All right. Here we go.